0: Ladies and gentlemen, in addition to those warnings, tonight's episode also includes multiple instances of Una O'Connor. The wonderful, dulcet tones of Una O'Connor. You have been warned. And now, let's enter a new world of of gods gods and and monsters. Mm. Oh, I thought I was alone. Good evening, smoke, friend. Yes, I hope so. Have a cigar. They're my only weakness. Mm.
1: Good. Good. You make man like me? No. Woman. Friend for you. Woman. Friend.
2: Yes. I want friend like me. I think you can be very useful. And you will add a little force to the argument if necessary. Do you know who Henry Frankenstein is? And who you are? Yes, I know. Made me from dead.
0: I love dead. Hate living. You're wise in your generation. We must have a long
2: talk. And then I have an important call to make.
1: Woman. Friend. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Yesteryear, Valley Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the Picture Palace of the Past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside, so hurry and get your seats. Tonight the Ballyhoo feels it would be unkind to present this episode without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to begin an ongoing discussion of the legendary Universal Monsters, a group of cinematic icons who sought to terrify the cinema going public of its time without reckoning upon longevity. It is one of the most over-discussed subjects ever spoken of. It deals with the two great elements a film can possess, horror and empathy. Now, I think tonight's film will shock you with its provocative and pioneering sense of humor. It may thrill you with the way you feel empathy and extreme layers of psychosexual subtext. And it may even horrify you with its uncompromised vision that blends the terror and humor one can find in the macabre story of a monster seeking companionship in a cruel, lonely world. So if any of you should feel that you would not want to subject your nerves to such brilliance, now is your chance to, um, well, we've warned you. Now that the warning is passed, get into your seats, monster kids, for what many consider to be the ultimate achievement of the era, courtesy of Mr. James Whale. That's right. Tonight, the monster demands a, na- a mate in 1935's The Bride of Frankenstein. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. <laughs> Once you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. In 1935, the robust legacy of monsters established firmly in 1931 with Dracula and Frankenstein would culminate into the ultimate statement on the matter with James Whale's funny and terrifying 1935 sequel to the 1931 classic. Many have noted that the numerous thematic layers, the stunning score, and the keen performances of its stacked cast all exemplify what is best about this beloved subgenre of film. But how has The Bride itself found its way into the films of today? And what legacy does this singular film leave on the overall film landscape for all time? In order to solve that mystery, we have a guest whose enthusiasm is only matched by her talent. She is an actress and makeup artist who will help us find the secrets of life and dig up the lessons of what happens when man tries to play God a second fucking time. Please welcome to the show Aaron Mullane. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's great
2: thank you so much thanks so much for having me on
0: welcome aaron you you have um you you this is uh quite a treat that you have brought to the show because it's uh, it's strange that it's taken this long to get to universal monsters and there have been discussions with other guests about when theirs is going to happen but the moment you jumped in with of frankenstein i just got a i, I got a bug up my butt going like no we've got to start talking about him it's, it's 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 a done deal and you brought with us the Cream of the Crop film, which is uh, undeniably the one that everybody talks about. When it it comes is their to this crown
2: subject. jewel, as they call it. Yes,
0: yeah. exactly. This is the one that they point to and go, this is art. It's not just a bunch of horror movies. It's it, This is art. Um, now, as we've learned over time, that the horror genre has always been art, and it doesn't matter which film you select. It's all art. Um, but before we get into the discussion of Universal Monsters, I want the Ballyhoo listeners to get to know you. So you... We met under uh, the circumstances of a short film called Heavy Hangs the Sky. We did. Yeah, where the great Risa Scott uh, connected us uh, for you to play a role in the film. And uh, it was wonderful to get to work with you, even for the one day. Um, It was late at night, and we're all kind of figuring out our different working parts in that particular area. And I was very grateful that you were extremely patient with me as a director. Oh,
2: no. I've learned patience over the years. So I have a background in theater and in theater, you have to have a lot of patience because mm-hmm. it is a group effort. I feel like sometimes you lose a little bit of that group effort mentality in a, on a film set. Mm-hmm. So I feel like coming from my background of theater, having that ensemble mentality, it makes it a lot easier and smoother especially on those late night sets
0: yeah we were in the for the listeners we were uh, I think your call time was around 11 p.m. and you didn't get out till about one or two in the morning
2: yeah and I showed up and everyone was like oh we're an hour late and I was like yeah that's about <laughs> expected
0: yeah it will th- and thankfully we actually ended up wrapping an hour early this despite being an hour late because we made up for it in other ways. Efficiency. And I think well, I think your efficiency definitely contributed <laughs> to it. Um, you were a very jovial presence on set. And it did make me wonder, um, even as you left and I told you, we've got to get you on the show because you're a very jovial and fun loving human being. I want to oh, know your you. journey with acting. How did this how did this begin with begin with you?
2: Um, I auditioned for my first play in eighth grade. And I didn't get cast,
0: but I... So you said, I'll show them. Basically.
2: <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, cool. What else can I do? Can What else can I do? And I was a house manager. Mm. So I started learning behind the scenes stuff pretty immediately. Mm. And helped out with props and stuff. And then... My freshman year of high school, I auditioned again for some more shows and finally got cast in Neil Simon's Lost in Yonkers. I still love Neil Simon. He's one of my favorite.
0: Is Lost in Yonkers your favorite Neil Simon?
2: That and fools, fools is a lot of fun. Okay,
0: fools um, is a good time. I will always stick to the Sunshine Boys for mine. I love the Sunshine Boys. That is a good. That one that as one well. makes me cry.
2: He has a very large repertoire, oh, yeah. though, so there's a lot to pick from. Oh yeah,
0: it's 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 impossible. Like even if we pick like one or two or three titles, we're still like talking talking about a fraction of his output. hundred <laughs> <100%. laughs> percent.
2: So once I was able to actually get on stage, get that get that little toe dip, it was kind of downhill from there. I was in. All sorts of different performing groups in high school and through college. Well, I was a BFA in theater in college. So (laughs) it was just a logical step for me to keep going. I wasn't really good at anything else. (laughs) You know, you get that feeling. You're (laughs) like, you know what? It's just got to actually when I went to college. I was going to be a teacher, and then I was pulled aside by a former teacher of mine, and she was like, do you really want to do this? <laughs> Are you 100% sure? Like, look <laughs> me in the eye. Do you want to do this? And I was like, Oh, I don't know. Now I'm having some second thoughts. And she was like, there, right there. Like, that no, second no, no, thought <laughs> means you should get out of this, because <laughs> teaching is not what it used to be when I got started. And I was like, okay, cool. She was like, you want to be a performer, because mm-hmm. you're a performer. And yeah. I was like, yeah. She was like, go do that. So then it was kind of after college, I was at a bit of a crossroads. I was going to go to either Chicago mm. and move more towards theater and maybe more towards New York where I was going to come the other way and move more towards film. And I felt like film had a little bit more opportunities for me. I went to cosmetology school after College and got my hair license with the intention of doing hair and makeup behind uh, the camera and I've done some music videos and I've done a few web series and there's uh, I feel like working behind the camera makes you a much more empathetic actor. And yeah. performer and makes you a little bit more of an asset because you can relate to everybody else.
0: I agree because I've worked with Risa for many years and she's does multi she's multi-talented around the different aspects of the cast and the crew. So like she's she's worked behind the scenes as well as in front. So shout she, out to Risa. Yeah. And Rubble. when you said the thing about empathy and whatnot, it's great that you said that because you do end up finding out how to approach the different people on a set, whether that be a gaffer or a DP. Or in the case of what you would do with hair and makeup an actor and how you would deal with an actor. Now, I can honestly say from research going into this episode, you are 10 times more kind and charming than Jack Pierce probably was for Boris. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I've
2: heard some real horror stories about that, dude. Oddly
0: enough, though, Boris Karloff was the only one he really got along with.
2: (laughs) And they would. And I heard Boris was. Very quiet a lot, and that's probably why they
0: got along. They, they called they called me the giant gentleman <laughs> and I think that when you are learning that ability, you also understand how to present yourself on camera. You also learn what your assets are and like what what's going to make you look good on screen. And one of the things that Golden Age Hollywood has provided is insight into actors who knew lighting really well because they knew where yes. they how they were going to look good on screen. Absolutely, um, and I think that like. The intent of it now is different because you're going for a more creative version of it as opposed to a vanity element of it. Like it would have been in Golden Age Hollywood. Here, right now, we do it for the creative purposes. We know what's going to add to the film overall. And one thing that I was struck by when you pitched this movie was that not only are you a makeup artist and whatnot, but you but you also were picking something that. It really is an actor's movie at the end of the day. Um, Very much so. The Bride yeah. of Frankenstein is an actor's movie. It's also a makeup artist's movie, and it's also a theater director's movie in a lot of respects, which knowing now that you worked as a stage a house manager for a little while prior to getting cast in something is interesting because Jimmy Whale did the same thing. And so you kind of picked this perfect film to discuss that in, in- incorporates your own history and your talents into this so i think this will be quite a treat now i will ask you what is your experience with golden age hollywood um how did you get into it or are you into it at all
2: i am very into it oh good judge (laughs) i judge people very harshly on how many old movies they've seen because (laughs) over my life i've kind of discovered that not a lot of people in like my age range have seen a lot of the, I literally just showed my boyfriend Logan's Run the other night for the first time and I was like, how have you never seen this movie? How is this new to you? This is an incredible sci-fi movie.
0: Was he watching the film and going like, is that Basil Exposition?
2: <laughs> Damn, that was literally the first thing out of his mouth. He was like, oh my gosh, that's the guy from Austin Powers. And I was like, yeah. I mean, he also was Romeo in Romeo and Juliet one time. Too. But who
0: remembers that? Yeah, no.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Austin Powers. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, my parents are kind of... From my parents are boomers and they ca- had kids late, and mm-hmm. so I grew up with a lot of stuff from the like 50s and 60s, and even before then, I uh most of my childhood was watching black and white movies on a Friday night.
0: Wonderful. Did you have a favorite growing up, um, other than maybe this film? Did you have another one that kind of oh, that's a really hard question. I'll <laughs> <laughs> we'll just throw there's, out some names here uh, some- Jimmy Stewart, Cary Grant, uh,
2: so uh. I got into Alfred Hitchcock real early on in my life. Oh, that's a good answer. Fun story. (laughs) Uh, I broke my leg when I was in sixth grade and my dad thought it would be really funny to bring home rear window and (laughs) show it to me while I was in a cast. (laughs) So that was the first time I saw rear window (laughs) and I kind of like fell in love with, uh, Grace Kelly. And mm-hmm. Jimmy Stewart in that whole, the tone the, the like rich colors of that movie. yep and the sound like every little nuanced aspect of that movie is incredible. The, and the uh, moment you
0: fully realize psycho, that, that oh, everything, psycho, yes. everything
2: everything he ever did is it, worth a watch. I honestly.
0: did a, in doing a full series on him for 25 <laughs> episodes, which encompass several hours the it's it, Hitchcock has proven to be that like filmmaker that I always loved, but I didn't realize how much I loved him until I did that series rear window has been the inspiration point for several different creative choices I've made in the last couple of months because I love in that movie that Grace Kelly is the most active person in the film. 100%. She is solving the mystery. And I, uh, we were watching it at our film club through secret history of Hollywood. And, uh, I just blurted out one day, like we just need to put her and Thelma Ritter in a detective agency where they solve mysteries (laughs) And I wrote a radio <laughs> script called Lisa Fremont Greenwich Village P.I.
2: <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'd watch that. Yeah. It, That'd be great. And
0: it's like the the whole thing is just a big Hitchcock tribute. But that film inspires so much like what if scenarios. And when you I think when you're younger and you watch it, you get in you get into the whole vibe of it and the Raymond Burr murder and whatnot. When you start learning more about film and realizing for, in a full sense that that movie only takes place in one room. Like from all perspectives, like everything is in that one room. Mm-hmm. It's astounding. It's a, it's an astounding achievement. So that you've mentioned that you've grown up with this in your life. When's the first time you were haunted by the Universal monsters and specifically Bride of Frankenstein?
2: That's it's it was a long time ago, probably like seven or eight years old. Um, I remember a Halloween where my mom spent many hours making a costume and fixing my hair to, and like taping a plastic cup to my head to get my hair to stand up and like using weird color things to get the, the white streak just right. And I went out and won a costume contest. And I think that was like seven or eight. But I never, I don't know if this movie ever haunted me. I think it more fascinated me. This is the only one that has a female character in it. Yeah. It's the only one that I resonated with. It didn't have like a final girl. There wasn't like some screaming banshee through most of the movie who the guys are trying to save. I mean, there is Elizabeth. But I mean, mostly you're waiting for the bride at the end. This is still a very male driven movie, but it it has a very like clear female character that none of the other universal movies have.
0: No. And what's more, it's the o- one of the only ones to possess uh, as of recent readings uh, feminist uh, readings into it, which is interesting because the, not just given that James well directed the film, but also the fact that you have Elsa Lanchester playing both Mary Shelley and the bride and kind of playing into this duality that bookends the movie essentially because she is our uh, she's our entry point and our exit point in a lot of respects and I find it interesting that this film has maintained the legs that it has because not just because of the deep readings into it but also that even as you were talking about judging people who can't get into golden age Hollywood and whatnot this is a film that still draws in a crowd when it's played back in a theater I went to a screening of this three or four months ago at the Alamo and be, gr- granted, there's limited capacity now, still a packed house for what we had, what we were able to do packed house. Everybody's getting in on the gags. Everybody's thrilling to every single section of it. And it's an hour and 15 minutes. It's not like we're in for this like full Avengers end game ride, right? We're getting a full experience in that 75 minutes that still compels people. And so like any time I ever think like oh the golden age of hollywood like nobody gets into it it's just like a small niche group of people I go to repertory screenings like that and I'm like oh no this is still this is still very popular
2: Well it still showcases a lot of the like Peak FX of the day as well, like the yeah. the scene where Pretorius brings out the little the little, his little tiny creatures. Like mm-hmm. that was one of the first scenes that really like enchanted me in that movie. I was like, those are really cool. How did they do that? <laughs> and we- how does that happen? And those effects still hold up mm-hmm. today. They are still incredible.
0: James P. Fulton, ladies and gentlemen, he is not going away from this show because he in he perfects the black velvet technique that we will kind of break down in the plot here because he not like, before this, he perfected it arguably in a way that is more known to the mainstream with the invisible man, because the invisible man uses the same tech that they use for those miniature figures, but with Claude Rains, entire performance. And you're right. It does still hold up to the point where when you watch it on a blu-ray Upgraded. Because you and I both have the same Blu-ray copy. Yeah. It doesn't... You don't don't care about the lines. You don't care about any indication of where it's being matted. It still works. In a way that sometimes CGI today does not. Um,
2: I could go on a rant about practical (laughs) effects, but I'm going to save everyone the trouble. And I prefer practical effects... I was literally one of my favorite podcasts I'm going to name drop hopefully that's okay last podcast on the left oh, the their, one, that's a wonderful show their, uh, their most recent episode they were talking with an F- FX artist and they brought this movie up I was literally just listening to it earlier today but they were also talking about how these movies Ray Harryhausen mm-hmm. how all of these practical effects movies they have lasted for years and years people are still going to line up for the showings of this movie and of Jason and the Argonauts. They might King Kong. Yeah. They might not show up for some of the like you might have a little less for some of those eighties movies, you know? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Like I mean Evil Dead 2 uses those same kind of practical effects and I feel like that film still holds a good a good uh heart and that's another
2: sequel that i feel was a little bit better than yeah. the, the first but that comes down to money <laughs> a lot of these sequels that are better than the originals it's just like oh here director here's some money to go do what you wanted to do in the first one
0: it's definitely the case with this movie now and and when you get into the discussion of like bride of frankenstein versus the original frankenstein you're ultimately coming down to a couple of factors you're coming into preference um as a viewer but also you are, rec- you are identifying to a certain extent what, what, the f- what you are taking away from the film ideally. When, I, when you're a fan of 1931's Frankenstein, I feel like you're very drawn into horror. When you cite Bright of Frankenstein, you are either doing one of two things. You're either very drawn into the horror to the point where you get all the metatextual context and how the humor works, or you are enjoying it for the comedy because this, this film plays in two different camps here. Um, and I I do think that bringing it back to what you said about like the stability that these special effects films of the past have, I do think that there is always going to be this draw to practical effects that CGI will never be able to fill. Absolutely. I, I think it's why Lord of the Rings holds up better for most people than the Hobbit trilogy, which I'm, I'm a fan of both ends of that spectrum, but the Lord of the Rings feels lived in as does this movie as does king kong as does jason and the argonauts nothing feels like it shouldn't belong whereas i love avengers but thanos is i know he's a computer <laughs> like you know
2: I, I, this I'm, is going to make me sound old but i also really enjoy the pacing of golden age movies mm-hmm. like the current pacing of the marvel universe and all these superhero movies where it's like fast cuts really really what well, What am I, if we're supposed to show and not tell, what am I getting in two and a half seconds of showing? You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I, I, now like I can go on either end, but when it comes to Golden Age Hollywood, I am in your camp that I appreciate getting to seep in the details. Um, I find this really especially fun with comedy because when you're watching Golden Age comedy in particular, you are forced to listen in a way that I don't think. A modern film is allowing you to. I think it wants to get you along pretty quick. When you watch an Abbott and Costello movie. I was
2: trying really hard not to bring up Abbott and Costello. Oh, that's fine. They, <laughs> what? they what? are literally. I watched so much Abbott and Costello. We like <laughs> burned through VHS tapes. But Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. Abbott and Costello meet that ghost. They're all great. The pacing, the timing. That's yep. honestly, I attribute a lot of like what I learned of how to be. A comedic actress, I attribute to,
0: yeah, Abbott and Costello. But Bud and Lou are are we, we just we had a fun time talking about them with Rio Rita, their film from 1942, and they will. More, they will absolutely come back up when it comes to Abner Costello and Me, Frankenstein. I it's such a good one. I did, it's it, so great. It's fantastic, and I'm a big fan of Who Done It, their uh, film where they're solving a mystery in a radio station.
2: Yep, that's a good one, too. and it's
0: the inspiration for Radio Land Murders, which is the one George Lucas film in the '90s that works for me. <laughs> I really
2: liked that movie. That was also a good movie. That movie. I forget that movie's George Lucas.
0: I think that that film. The reason it doesn't work for everybody is because it has an energy about it that both resembles the era but also incorporates what is good about some of the faster-paced editing of today. So it's kind of like blending the two. But that film has Stephen Tobolowski as the villain who creates television. <laughs> like, it's... <laughs> when you think about the plot of Radio Land Murders, it is absolutely ridiculous, but it's so amazing. Like, I love that plot. Like, I love the idea uh, 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 Ben Bryan at the end he's just like no don't don't be silly don't don't be silly Penny radio live forever it's just like this wonderful ironic ending finish it with and the angels sing Um, so I'm glad that you brought up that you were seeing these as uh, early as a kid because that was my experience with Universal Monsters I started off with Dracula Um, so I started it from the very beginning getting a VHS copy of it. I think the image of Dracula and Frankenstein were always kind of embedded in me because I'd seen the the Munsters before that on reruns. Um, and uh, Dracula unnerved me when I was younger because of Lugosi and because of Renfield. Um, as I've gotten older, I do realize that that movie is stage-bound and it's 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 tough for people and the, the Spanish version is better by a technical standard. Um, But it didn't matter to me. Uh, Frankenstein was the same thing in the respect that, like, Karloff unnerved me. Fritz unnerved me. Oh, yeah. Colin Clive unnerved me.
2: Oh, I was always more scared of Colin Clive than I was of Boris Karloff. Oh, I yeah. always, like, empathized with the monster, but I was, like, super kind of terrified of Dr. Frankenstein.
0: Yeah, the monster in the first one, he's kind of, like, he draws a... he He's, he's walking a line between terrifying and sympathetic because he does... By the end of the movie, he becomes much more aggressive, um, and not to mention the scene with him and Elizabeth Boudoir, um, and by the end in the windmill, but you get the scene with him and Maria, the, fla- the girl with the flower, and you you feel his pain. You feel the pain of somebody who was not asked to be brought into the world, but into the world I came. Um, and Invisible Man was the one that really clinched my love of it because it was so insane. And Claude Rains is a madman in that movie. He has the highest kill count of all these monsters because he derailed a train in that movie. It, it's, it's incredible. And I think that as we talk about this plot, we're going to find out that like some of the reasons we still love these films is because the, some of the scares still work for us regardless of how old they've gotten. There's, Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that like horror, we'll talk about it, but horror has evolved in such a way that what scares us has changed But the same basic principles of what can terrify you are present in these movies, and I think one of it has to do is with character, and this is a film built on character. And you don't get great characters like this if you don't have a solid director leading the way, and that, of course, would be today, James Whale. Now, James Whale has been talked about on this show in various spats because he's been brought up by me because I'm a fan of his. Um, he is a director that had quite a history not just coming into film but also has uh, a story that I think when film fans hear it they can't help but cry um, but we start off with we we have an impression of James Whale as the monster guy but he was much more than that he was a capable stage director he was an artist um, uh, started off as a painter um, and by the time he leaves this world, the monsters are both a blessing and a curse for him in certain respects. Um, but let's start off with him being born on July 22nd, 1889 in Dudley, Worcestershire, England. So that's now the most British place on this show because we've talked about several very British places. <laughs> He's the sixth of seven ch- children uh, to a blast man and a nurse. And he ended up being at the forefront of supporting his family by dropping out of school in his teens and he started working as a cobbler and selling the leftover nails from his cobbling job to sell his scrap metal. So he's digging for the money in the family. He is... I can't. I, you can't sell nails how, that how way. How
2: much more tragic can this story be? Oh, oh, oh. It gets more... Uh, no, I, I, I know, I, I know it is. It's, unfortunately, I do know the oh, story. It's not like a oh, new to oh, me. Oh, Aaron, it his, gets so much worse. It, it, it's, <laughs> It's very sad. His <laughs> life was very sad. It,
0: it gets it gets so much worse. I, it, my endeavors for painting bloomed when I became a sign painter for extra money, and I would eventually attend night school at the Dudley School of Arts and Crafts to become a painter and a damn good one if I might <laughs> add. And yes, he learns painting through work, so he learns how to mix business with art. In a word where which prepares him for Hollywood in the strangest of ways. Although what he ends up, you know, directing later on he would become contentious with the business element of several aspects. Um but a lot of this is halted because World War One breaks out in nineteen fourteen and to avoid conscription, he joins up the mili- in the military and he eventually receives a commission in the Worcestershire Regiment um in July of nineteen sixteen. A year later he is imprisoned in the Western front in Flanders in August of 1917, and he would remain a POW until the war's end and his return to England in 1918. But as a POW, he managed to make good use of his time by helping to put on amateur productions in the camp as a set designer, writer, producer, and actor. He found as he would be quoted as saying a great source of amusement and pleasure from the whole proceedings. So he learned how to be a theater (laughs) How to work it What theater. else?
2: What else you're going to do when you're a prisoner of war? I agreed. You got nothing else better going on?
0: Well, no, they they're just torturing us every day, but why don't we make this fun for ourselves? Like you put on this dress here and you um you you say a few <laughs> lines here in this naval <laughs> uniform. <laughs> All right, action. <laughs> that that is insane. We don't have we're we are very, very fucking spoiled and lucky in this generation to not have to be learning about our theatrical craft or our filmmaking craft in a POW camp. Right, right. <laughs> that's ins- that's- that feels like a disconnect that it's just like you have to appreciate it no matter like any of the circumstances. And the fact that he starts off as a painter and then kind of learns all of this under the duress and stress of war he f- comes out of the war a very full fledged artist in his own right. And by the time he comes back to England, he starts trying to sell cartoons um, and work his way as a cartoonist in 1919. But around this time, uh, he joins Nigel Playfair's theatrical company, where he worked in various capacities as an actor, set designer, stage director, or a house manager, and eventually just a director. So he gets even further training for three years. He works with Playfair's company. And then in that time, he also becomes engaged, uh, to Doris Zinkheisen, uh, and courts her for two years and then breaks off the engagement in 1925. Why would you say that is? Well, one of the things we're going to bring up on this show that was, it's kind of been alluded to already. James Whale was an openly gay man working in Hollywood. Um, and, we have talked about homosexual directors in golden age Hollywood before, but James Whale was, when we say openly gay, there's a quote within it saying that it was obvious to a sophisticate that he was, it was a quote being said by one of his contemporaries, I believe it was Chris Harrington, um, who would end up being like more of a historian for his efforts and as well as a film historian in general. But James Whale being an openly gay man in uh, sh- at this time, and specifically in Hollywood, is a rarity. Um, the bigger rarity is, is that there was no big fuss made over the fact. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that because he made the studio money, nobody was questioning it. Um,
2: oh, I agree. Yeah. If he wasn't doing very well, we probably wouldn't be talking about James Whale today. Oh, no, I would have been <laughs>
0: crucified. Not unlike the monster. <laughs> And I think that when we get further into the film, we're going to find out that, like whether or not he intended these things or not, a lot of those, a lot of that side of his personality plays through in the film. And as he's working through his theatrical productions in 1928, he is asked to direct *Journey's End* in 1928. It is a play by R.C. Sheriff, and it is about. British officers' experiences during World War I. This production that he puts on features such luminaries as people that you've never heard of before. Laurence Olivier, Maurice Evans, and Colin Clive. Who are those guys? Uh, Well, those first two, I have no idea who they are. Never heard of them. I think one of them had a mansion called Manderley. <laughs> I know that the other one is the world's greatest ape doctor <laughs> and uh the third one Colin Clive is arguably somebody we're going to be talking about today or he, not even he might be mentioned he, at yeah. least
2: once more today.
0: I think we will be talking about Colin Clive at least once. But yes, um uh, Maxim de Winter and Dr. Zayas. Nobody's fucking heard of them. <laughs> um, that's a lie. I love Planet of the Apes. <laughs> uh, and I love Rebecca, but not as much as I love Planet of the Apes. <laughs> um, and But yes, th- all of these guys are in here. This play opens up at the Savoy Theater on London's West End in January of 1929 to mega success. So James Whale in this short span skyrockets himself into becoming one of the top toasts of the theatrical world. He eventually is brought over by Gilbert Miller to produce the all British version of this show for the New York stage, which would premiere in March of 1929 on Broadway. Um, And this was being hailed by every critic as the definitive experience of world war one on the stage. And at the time that this film, that this play came out, film is starting to develop a firm cemented uh, leg in sound. 1927 obviously kicks it off with the jazz singer really selling this as a hot commodity that is more than just a fad. Um, And by 1929, most of the major studios have already transitioned into sound full-time, with MGM being one of the last holdouts for Broadway Melody um, and (laughs) Hollywood Review of 1929 within the same year, both firmly cementing it as sound is here to stay, and here is MGM's primary example of it. Um, now Hollywood beckons for whale he's brought over to Paramount Pictures in 1929 with his first assignment being dialogue director for the love doctor (laughs) Uh, which I've never seen the movie I have not seen that one either but the title has me convinced that I need to check it out and I might be disappointed but the love doctor is a title that Everybody can get on board with absolutely. Who doesn't love a love doctor? <laughs> it, it conjures up so many things in my head, knowing what James Whale might have done with it. <laughs> yeah, and but he let his contract expire after that. It was about a fifteen-week period. He got his job done pretty quick. Howard Hughes then brings him on board to a little movie called Hell's Angels, and he had finished this movie and then saw what the jazz singer was doing, and he told all of his uh, financial partners and his financial officers for Hughes Tool Incorporated, we've got to reshoot this film for sound, to which – was responded was are you fucking high Um, but and he said not as high as the planes are going to be when we reshoot this movie so get on it get on it (laughs) and uh, James Whale is brought in to do the dialogue direction for this film which is directed by Howard Hawks and talk about a guy who already gets thrown into the fray on some of the biggest elements of production and how Hell's Angels is a a really good boot camp I would feel to learn how to work in the Hollywood system because one Hell's Angels is independent but it's filmmaking you're being thrown into the most unruly conditions for filmmaking especially at that time
2: it's a definitely trial by fire situation
0: <laughs> yeah it's no different than independent film like i mean we were we were shooting our f- short film for 3 days but we were we were working on tight schedules if Howard Hughes is reshooting this film after being completed, essentially, you're going to be working under very extreme circumstances and strenuous circumstances. So he's thrown into this wonderful film school, essentially. And from there, the film adaptation of Journey's End is calling, and producers Michael Balkin and Thomas Welch all agree that Whale is the person to direct this film, so they bring him on, find financing from Tiffany Pictures, which is a film production company that is dubious because i've seen other works from them because jack benny was in a film for them called the medicine man which is not good but this film was the film adaptation of journey's end which also brought back colin clive uh into the role of stanhope and then brought in david manners who we would know from dracula and the black cat as raleigh um, and this premiere, uh, the premiere of this film was day and date apart from each other in both the UK and the US in 1929 to a triumphant success and this success led to Wales signing with Universal Studios so he makes the film version of Journey's End and he gets signed to Universal as a result that, and he is given carte blanche to pick whatever project he wants among the first things he does for him is Waterloo Bridge and then he finds himself drawn to Frankenstein We all know the legend of Frankenstein um, and it will be discussed in more detail on an eventual episode on Frankenstein from 1931. Needless to say, James Whale takes the Frankenstein uh, film away from Robert Florey and makes it his own because Robert Florey was the original director attached to this film um, and Robert Florey is also the one who tested Bale Lugosi for the part of the monster. He was right to turn down that version of Frankenstein that Florey was doing because it wasn't What ended up being done for James Whale, uh, under James Whale with Karloff and...
2: and I don't think we would have gotten the same depth of performance from Bella. No offense to Bella Lugosi, man. You would have
0: gotten a hammy performance, (laughs) no doubt. Like
2: like, I, I love me some Bella Lugosi, but we wouldn't probably still be taught the. The original movie and the subsequent sequel that was bound to happen if it made any money, regardless, yeah, we would—I doubt we would be talking about it like we are today. No, if someone else was playing that monster.
0: Yeah, there is no doubt in in anybody's mind. Um, for for however interesting it might be to see Bella Lugosi in that role, or even the test footage that they shot of him in makeup, which does not exist anymore, unfortunately. Uh, which the makeup for it was described as looking like the um, Golem, uh, the the monster from the Golem um, mm-hmm. from uh, Germany back in ni- back in the nineteen twenties. So they were trying to go off of a reference from a previous Frankenstein esque story. Um, and Flory, Flory's vision of it was was decidedly different than what Whale ended up going with. And Flory ends up settling for murders in the Rue Morgue, which seemed to be much more up his wheelhouse to a certain degree, or what he wanted to do. But it is a consolation prize. Murders in the Rue Morgue is not the movie he wanted to make, but it's the movie Lugosi wanted to make because he is allowed to ham it up there and be a malevolent force in that movie. Um, We should get down at this point to Boris Karloff being involved in Frankenstein because the monster is iconic. And without his performance, we we wouldn't think of the Frankenstein monster the way we do today without Karloff. Now, Karloff at this time, at the time of the original Frankenstein, was a -a workaday actor who was working bit parts all over the studio, mostly going uncredited. He was looking to essentially give up at this point, and he was eating lunch in the Universal Commissary when James Whale walked walked by, turned, looked at Karloff, and said, Your face has startling possibilities. (laughs)
2: Yeah, because he was starving. Yep. He looked already dead. Yep. That's how he got the job. He was a starving artist.
0: Yep. Congratulations. Yep, And later on, it was recalled by Karloff that he's like, when I found out what they were considering me for, I almost took offense to it because I was in my best suit that day. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just imagining him going like, Jimmy, you're, you're fucking insensitive. <laughs> like, and this is the thing with that. You, you mentioned him not eating and like being, like being starving. He added further to that because the initial Jack Pierce makeup that we all know and love today is retrofitted for him looking rather cadaverous, and they wanted to give him a further sunken-in feeling. And Karloff went with, "Hey, what if I take where shoes out?" And I took, he took the bridge out of his teeth, and it allowed his cheek to sink in a little bit naturally. So it's not even Jack Pierce's makeup; it's just his, it's just his mouth going in naturally. That's so gross. That, <laughs> you have no idea. But I mean, it looks
2: fantastic. So. <laughs>
0: well, thank you. <laughs> I I think that by the time you get him in that performance, he is he is he is a man out of options and out of time. So he is literally giving it his all to the point where the makeup, which is consistent of cotton and collodion, it is cotton, and I'm talking thick strips of mm-hmm. cotton soaked in collodion to get those veins in that look heavy wax and a series of different implements around his body to give him a lumbering feeling, not the least of which were weighted boots. Those. The,
2: oh, you're probably about to say what I was about to say. The
0: weighted boots were contributing to...
2: I think he broke his back, broke a, a something in he his He sustained
0: back? a back injury as a result of yeah. that windmill sequence to where he went, oh, Jimmy, I, I'm sorry to bother you. Thank you for this opportunity, but I think I'm about to fucking die. <laughs> this was before unions. This is before... <laughs> <laughs> Boris Karloff, by the way, one of the founding members of the Screen Actors Guild. It's, I,
2: I wonder why. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Look, I'm not trying to be difficult here, Carl, but my back will never be the same. So, death, death to your management skills and up with unions. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) He he had to. He had no choice. It's perfect. It's wonderful. And he becomes a megastar off of Frankenstein. And like I said, we will discuss the further intricacies of that film at a later episode. But needless to say, by the time he gets to Bride of Frankenstein, uh, he is more well-fed. And that contributes to a difference in the look because now suddenly the monster looks a little bit more fuller-faced. And additionally, the the big thing the uh, there's adjustments in the makeup. So what would normally built up heavily with collo- cotton and collodion was replaced more often than not with a rubber appliance. So at this point, Jack Pierce has actually upped his game a little bit more. He's just like, well, I'm, I'm innovating further. I'm not having to build this up for eight hours every day out of scratch. Now I have some consistency of appliance, which just streamlined the process. Um, I, every time I hear Rick Baker talk about in an interview, What Jack Pierce had to do, it baffles me that they got these films done as quickly as they did at times. Because it just sounds like the makeup process for that was both dangerous and just a fucking nightmare. And we're lucky with makeup appliances today. I mean, you...
2: Yeah, I I'm not really envious of the makeup job that they go through. <laughs> that, I don't know if you've ever had cake makeup on your face, but just like no. one layer of that is super uncomfortable and they had to have like layers and layers and layers mm. of that and we didn't really have li- breathable latex back then and yeah. so yeah. No, I'm very happy for the advances that we've made in FX makeup.
0: <laughs> yeah, and 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 funnily enough, like a lot of what we have as a convenience to us today would come from Bud Westmore's innovations later on, which would uh, uh, suppress Jack Pierce's uh, initial designs because Bud Westmore's makeup became a lot more accessible and a lot more cheap to produce. So somebody like Pierce, not as relevant when you can streamline that process even further. But arguably, Pierce and Westmore, both are the granddaddies of this makeup industry that we uh, see today.
2: Oh, 100%.
0: And I will tell you that, when you when you think of that being one problem in Br- Bride of frankenstein which is to solve which is how do we streamline this process and also how do we make this less arduous for Boris Karloff who during production on this film had to had to lay on a slant table because he still had back issues and couldn't sw- sit just right um Rick Baker talks about the photograph of him smoking a cigarette and drinking a cup, a cup of tea on that slant table looking fucking miserable <laughs>
2: yeah no i've seen that picture he looks like he wants to go home and take a nap
0: yeah i feel he, really bad he for him. is absolutely just gone with it now that is not the only issue with this film in terms of a production problem needing to be solved there are several But it starts with Jimmy Whale didn't want to do this script. He didn't want to do this film. He didn't want to touch Frankenstein's monster again. He didn't
2: think there needed to be a sequel. He thought that it was a one-and-done sort of thing, which, I mean, I guess I can see his... Where he's coming from, but the book, The Bride was always in the book. It has yeah. Be, I hope oh, you've yeah. read the book. It's been right? a while, but
0: right. yes, I do know it's that. It's also been a while for me, but like, yeah.
2: I feel like the the Robert De Niro adaptation yeah. <laughs> is a more full version of the story it in is. one go. It is. <laughs> what is that face?
0: It, it, I'm I'm I am acknowledging that it is very faithful to the book in many respects. <laughs> Will I watch it again? Is the big question of the day. <laughs>
2: Do I think Robert Gennaro was a good Adam? <laughs> uh, not really. Uh, but it was. Guys, great. watch The Irishman. It's great.
0: Yeah, no, anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah, it's great. But um, no, you're right. Uh, not only that, but like you also have in. In the Frankenstein novel, the elements on the boat and, you know, Henry Frankenstein. Oh yeah. Or, there's
2: all sorts of stuff that they cut out, but I do feel like it, I get where James Whale is coming from. And I also get where the studio is coming from. It mm-hmm. came out and it came out and it was a hit. Yeah. Why would you, I mean, studios still do it today. How many sequels do we get? All the time we get sequels.
0: Exactly. And this is kind of like the forebearer of a studio really wanting to recapture the magic of the first outing from a financial standpoint. Now, Universal at this time was struggling a little bit because not every horror film they were making was a huge hit. The old Dark House did not do good for them, which was also a return from James Whale. Um, you had Murders in the Room Morgue dipped off sharply for people. Um, and you had you had other films like The Man Who Reclaimed His Head with Claude Rains, which was coming off of the success of The Invisible Man. But it was not a really a horror film, but they're trying to capture that horror aesthetic and it's not quite working. The key ones that we see today with the Universal Monsters are, are are the ones that hit big. So Dracula, Frankenstein, the Invisible Man, and the Mummy at this time are your big guns. We don't get the Wolfman until the 40s. And even when they tried to do like Werewolves of London and other films of that ilk, those don't go go, go over well either because they haven't perfected the formula that's going to work best for them. And universal horror itself extends into a bunch of different subgenres. So, like, there's mystery films, like the Inter Sanctum films of the Mystery of Edward and Drood. And you have the Karloff Lugosi team up films, which are not monster related, but they are horrific, which we talked about that in episode one with the Black Cat. In this same year, you also have Lugosi and Karloff in The Raven, which is a worthy follow up to the Black Cat. It's not as great as the Black Cat, but it's so much fucking fun. And. They are really wanting that sequel to Frankenstein because they know that they can help secure further financing for bigger projects that they want to attach to. And also to keep themselves afloat because Universal did not have a steady stream of income like other studios because it did not have a chain of theaters. Unlike every other studio, Universal was inhabiting the theaters that didn't have a direct chain attached to them. So a lot of independent theaters. But they, when they made money, they made a lot of money. So Carl Lumley Jr. wants this movie. He wants James Whale to do it. He really wants James Whale to do it. And James Whale looks at other treatments, not the least of which is Robert Florey, who came to do the sequel. Jimmy Whale saw the script and tossed it in the garbage, <laughs> as did, it seemed, other people. Robert Florey could not catch a break with, with Frankenstein. Um, and James Whale said, well... I'm going to do one of two things here. If I'm going to, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to insist on a couple of things here. Number one is I want you to help me do the film. One more river. And number two, I want to take control of this and make it my own. So James whale uses Bride of Frankenstein to his advantage for other projects. And one of the first things he does is take control of the script, the style, and almost every other aspect of this production, and it shows in this movie. James Whale is all over this movie, not too dissimilarly from how he's all over the Invisible Man. Invisible Man and Bride of Frankenstein are James Whale. Like, it's infused with his personality. And we get the script by Holbert. The final script by Holbert is subversive, It is ridden with taboo and it is terrifying in a lot of places. Um, And you are taking, as you said, this element of the bride character from the original novel, which is a section of the book where the monster demands that Frankenstein make a a companion for him. And Whale takes this and turns it into this amazing allegory for loneliness.
2: Yeah, it's a lot more like, Hypersexualized in the book, if I remember correctly, he's a lot more aggressive with it. Yeah, the 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 Frankenstein's monster in the book is much much different from the portrayal that Bo- Boris Karloff gives.
0: Right. Yeah, and the, and part of the element of speech is important in distinguishing that difference because Frank the monster is articulate in um in the book in Movie Land. uh, (laughs) He is relegated primarily, unless we're talking the Bob De Niro version, we are talking about a monster who speaks in very slow and jumbled delivery, because it's, it's, it's like a child learning its first words. And Karloff did not want this monster to talk. He thought that it would ruin the impact of the original portrayal if you suddenly had him speaking. And that de- actually does a couple of things. Number one, I love this the way the monster talks in this movie. I don't know how you feel about it. Oh but. no,
2: I do too. I think it's perfect. He's like he's been out in the world a little bit. He's evolved a little bit. He's learn. He is learning. He's learning a lot quicker than I would probably give a monster like that credit for. Like <laughs> he speaks in more or less full sentences when he decides to do something other than grunt. There's still a lot of grunting in this movie, but yeah. I mean. He has some really choice, funny lines. Yes, he does. Any of his dialogue with Pretorius is really, really funny. Yeah.
0: And also the way he actively, he's reactive to um, certain characters when he encounters them, not the least of which is when he finally does, like, when he comes back to his creator, he just goes, Frankenstein. Like that, like that kind of thing. Like you can tell, like, okay, he knows where to address his anger. um, And you have. I, I think it comes to full force by the very end of the picture. Um, the one thing, though, that some people have argued, and I and I understand where they're coming from, is that it does derail the physicality of his performance because you are focusing on the speech elements in certain aspects. I get it. I don't agree with it. Yeah. I
2: was, I was going to say, I don't necessarily agree with that. I feel like his minimal dialogue shows a character growth that I appreciate mm-hmm. from one movie to the next. If yeah. you look, if you, I put the first two movies, Frankenstein and the bride of Frankenstein in a completely separate category from the rest of what I'm going to call the house of Frankenstein movies. Cause there's like <laughs> five of them. There's a bunch of them. They just like really got latched onto that Frankenstein tea and tried to squeeze every little last drop out of it. Right. Um, But the first two movies really kind of set up on their own. So if we just look at those two, it shows an actual arc of the monster. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's a more complete performance from him as if. If he didn't speak, I feel like it would be a little lackluster.
0: What's What's interesting is you bring that up because I do love the latter Frankenstein movies. However, the last time Karloff plays this is in Son of Frankenstein and this monster suddenly loses his speech all over again, probably at the insistence of Karloff if he was going to return to that role. And Son of Frankenstein's the, the real star of that movie is Bela Lugosi. Like, Absolutely. That's not even a question. Igor is the star of that movie. And then by the time you get to Ghost and Curse and then Werewolf, uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, like the monster has just become primarily the lumbering brute, with the exception of when Igor, Igor's brain is put into the monster, and suddenly the monster is speaking like Bela Lugosi. Those
2: latter movies, the monster becomes more a caricature of himself. He's a a, he's a prop. Yeah, 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 rather than a full eyes, fully realized. Yeah.
0: individual. And what's funny is, is that the 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 primary imitation of the monsters' walk and everything doesn't come from Karloff. It comes from Lugosi in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, and/or Glenn Strange in any further portrayal because it's the arms stretched out, it's the yeah. that real lumbering. But when you watch Karloff in these first two, in particular, he, he's not like putting his arms out like that unless he's like trying to he's catch He's trying butterfly. to
2: grab something. Exactly. But he doesn't like walk around like a zombie.
0: No, he does not, and. Uh, I think that I I agree with you that it does complete that perfect performance. Well, that, that, that encompass performance, like it's a, it's a full arc. Um, What's more, I like that you said that you kind of can divide these two up into two different camps in certain respects, because by the end of the first one, you're already driven into the madness of a climactic fight in a windmill. The only way to go is absolutely nuts, which is what this movie does. And if you're going to add the bride element and whatnot and you're going to add this bookend with Mary Shelley, like, yes, you're going to go full nuts because what else can you do with this property? And I think James Wells saw that because he's just like, I'm going to – I can't make – he his phraseology was I can't make it better than the first one, but I can make it memorable.
2: Oh, and that was achieved, I feel like. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> and, and, and and arguably other people have said like, well, no, you did top it. And like and that's like – but that's always dependent on who you're asking in the – in the grand scheme of monster fandom because everybody has their own favorites and not the least of which you create another iconic monster in the process which is Elsa Lanchester as the bride and I think we should talk a little bit about Elsa Lanchester because she is the iconography of this movie she is she is the thing the big the big image you take away from this movie is her unquestionably she's
2: in like 5 minutes of this movie yep. and she is on every poster
0: Yep <laughs> <laughs> it's insane. It's insane. When I went to uh, a screening of Dracula with my Real Nerds co-host, Ryan, there was this British gal sitting behind us because we were in the front row. We always sit in the front row. She's sitting in the back and we all got monster pins uh, for the screening. And I got uh, uh, Karloff as as the monster and my co-host, I think, got uh, the mummy. And he, he asked if I wanted to trade and I said, nope. And <laughs> uh, But we We left, and this woman who had gotten a creature from the black lagoon pin, she said, "Does anybody have the bride? I'd like to get the bride. I'm willing to trade <laughs> because she wanted the bride, and I had to look at it going like, oh, "I don't have the bride. I'm sorry. <laughs> just walk away and just feeling bad going like i could have I could have helped somebody if I had the bride, but I don't have the bride, But that image is so powerful for people that they want it. They want that image in front of them, and Elsa Lanchester is that image. And she is quite a legacy unto herself. Born in 1902, she studies dance under Isadora Duncan, who she said she did not like, <laughs> but she was more than happy to steal her dancing style and teach it to the children of the South London district <laughs> in order to make money for the family. She comes from a family of self-described Bohemians, and by the time she's giving these classes, she her her has already had to go back to England after studying in France during the outbreak of world war one and after world war one is over and all these dance classes are settled she starts the children's theater which later becomes the cave of harmony and a nightclub which modern plays and cabarets were turned into accessible performances and she revived old victorian songs and ballads and she ended up recording a lot of 78 records from Col- for Columbia as a result of this, which I did not know until today. Yeah, I didn't know that either. That's insane. And she uh, it perfects a lot of this in another review performance with Riverside Nights. Her film debut comes in 1925 for an amateur production of The Scarlet Woman. And in the same span of time, she is the main star of three silent shorts written by HG Wells and directed by Ivor Montague. Oh, wow. In these silent shorts, she meets her husband, Charles Lawton. Charles Lawton has been discussed in several different forms, variations on this show. So we will not go further into his story other than the fact that he and Elsa Lanchester married later that year and they would be on stage and on screen together in several different forms of variations starting with their meeting upon being in Mr. Po- Hack, which is where they fully meet. And then they go into these silent films by Ivor Montague, and they would be part of the Old Vic Company of touring Shakespeare for the 33-34 season. They would appear together in the private life of Henry VIII, which was a big deal for Lawton, and they would become... They would One of their last stage performances would be in 1958, not too long before Lawton's eventual death. And she and Lawton basically frequent between America and Britain. They go back and forth. In the time that Lawton is making a name for himself both in Hollywood and in the UK, because he had Mayflower Productions over in the UK, which made Jamaica end with Alfred Hitchcock, she's in the films David Copperfield and Naughty Mar- Marietta. And this is what draws her to the attention of James Whale, <laughs> who sees in her that she can not only play the bride, but also Mary Shelley. Which is a big, important part of this bookend scenario situation. And within that, production begins, but it can't fully begin without adding in the third big piece of the sequel puzzle for this movie. And it is the wonderful Ernest Thessinger uh, as Dr. Pretorius. A role that was designed initially for Claude Rains, because Claude Rains had one more picture on his contract, but he did not want to do it, and... Frankly, James Whale didn't want him to do it either. He wanted his pal Ernest Thesiger, who is—I'm going to go out on a limb and say—when people re- refer to the homosexual element of this movie, it uh, starts with Ernest Thesiger. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and that's—and that's a positive thing I do feel because he gives this overtly campy and wonderful performance that I don't think any actor could do ever. I don't think any other actor can do exactly what he does because there is something that people can draw off of over the years, but
2: he had a very unique style that made the movie on another level. Yeah. And
0: his experience through life suggests that he has the ability to play this kind of broad scenario. He's born to a clerk assistant in part in parliament on January 15th, 1879. He starts off as an emphasis for painting but then changes to the dramatic arts. When World War One breaks out, he requests to be part of a Scottish regiment because he always fancied wearing a kilt.
2: <laughs> Respect. I love that. Very it's a great right off the bat we great are decision.
0: we are fully aware that he is openly gay or bisexual. I got conflicting reports. I've heard openly gay, but I've also heard openly bisexual, which in part might explain why he was married to Jeanette Mary Fernie Rankin. Since 1917 up until his death, um, but I think that
2: lady could have used a few more names. <laughs> I don't think that was enough for her.
0: <laughs> Ernest Thesiger was like, "No, no, no. I need, I, I need how many more? Oh, I need 15 names. That's the only way I'll marry you. Oh, you've only got four. I guess I'll settle for you." <laughs> uh, and th- I found this is the funniest quote that explains Ernest Thesiger to a T. Um, and this is. Um, Portrayed beautifully, by the way, in Adam Roach's Secret History of Hollywood, as he's describing Thesiger's life. When he was describing his experience in France during the war and being in the trenches and getting injured and whatnot, he summed up the war by saying, Oh, my dear, the noise and the people. <laughs> <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to describe one of the most terrifying and horrific experiences of the beginning of the 20th century. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I mean it's very descriptive, like you
0: get it. Just so noisy.
2: <laughs> the noise and just, the people. Just
0: so just so unbearable. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny. Um now the now he is initially brought in for the old dark house and uh that's where he kicks off a lot of he he had done film work in Hollywood before and in films before, but uh his association with Jimmy Whale which actually starts early on because they met each other in the 1920s and Thessager was kind of like a mentor for him and um he returns the favor by giving his uh, buddy two of the most two of the most memorable horror films of all time and one of the most memorable characters of all time. Um and is with that that we can jump into this plot which is all over the map brilliant. Um first of all Bride of Frankenstein uh Directed by James Whale, as we've discussed. Screenplay by William Horlbert, although Whale also contributed heavily to the script, uh, with a story by Hurlbut and John L. Balderston. Um, starring Boris Karloff, Colin Clive, Valerie Hobson, Elsa Lanchester, Ernest Thesiger, Evie, E. E. Clive, and. Una motherfucking O'Connor. She's so great. <laughs> She's amazing. And I know that former guest Smokey is not happy with hearing her name, but guess what? We're not only going to be pl- showing, talking about her and mentioning her name, we're also going to be playing clips for her uh, performance in the middle of this episode. So buckle up, Smokey. You're in for a ride.
2: <laughs> yeah, Smokey, I'm, a, I'm here to prove you wrong. But... <laughs> I, think, I think you, you
0: need to internation- go back to school. Internet shot across the bow. <laughs> Uh, with cinematography by John J. Mescol, edited by Ted J. Kent, music by the great Franz Waxman, uh, with a runtime of 75 minutes on a budget of $397,000. This film is an epic of horror, and it begins just as much so with introducing the main star of the film as Just Karloff.
2: I was going to bring up the credits, because the credits are, like wanna you start off on a high point. Not only do they introduce the monster as just Karloff, but uh the bride isn't mentioned. It's just a question mark. Which was they credit Mary Shelley mm-hmm. but they leave it, oh, oh who's this bride? It's they didn't put that much makeup on the woman. No, they didn't. Like sh- <laughs> we're not trying to
0: like convince you it's someone's different. <laughs> And so they're going to be idiots, is what we we call in the business, morons. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually true because this um the, in the first film, Karloff was not credited initially. Um, in the opening credits, he has a question mark for the Frankenstein monster, and then at the end, it's revealed as Karloff. Um, and Karloff, by the way, because he you some might be wondering, uh, if they hadn't listened to episode one of this show, why was Karloff just called Karloff? Well. His last name was so synonymous with horror and terror and box office that you didn't need to add the Boris in there. You could just call him by Karloff. He was that famous at this point. Everybody knew Karloff the way they knew Lon Chaney at this point. It was that impactful, and I love just seeing Karloff. Like it's it's really cool. It's like Prince, you know. That's all you need to know. You know what?
2: He kind of was. Like the prince of his time a little bit. I, I don't know if he it would was. take that as a compliment, but it, I just want—I to, to just
0: want to see everybody laughing in the purple rain. Purple rain. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we get, and also James Whale gets quite a credit entrance because his directed There's
2: a big by- zoom. I—I I wonder if that w- he put that in his writer. He was like, I have to have like a zoom in on my name.
0: It's—it's—it's it's, it's a great thing. Like I don't think a director can get away with that today without being supremely egotistical. With James Whale, it feels earned. <laughs> uh, when I, I this is not when I see other directors, be like from the legendary director of blah 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 blah, or from legendary producer Steven Spielberg, I'm just like, that's great. I, I don't need to be reminded of your uh, of your legacy here. When James Whale, on the other hand, I will let him have that every minute of the day. <laughs> I will not ever question any time James Whale's name pops up in some form of posterity because I'm like, nope, that's deserved. And we open up, and it's a stormy night, and Lord Byron is drunk as shit.
2: (laughs) You mean Lord Byron? Oh, God. There's so many R rolling in this
0: movie. (laughs) Lord Byron played by Gavin Gordon, and we also have in this house uh, uh, Mary Shelley played by Elsa Lanchester, Douglas Walton playing Percy Shelley and Una O'Connor in an additional role walking those dogs. So she pulled double duty for this movie. So she's in both this opening thing and then we get her pretty much in the next scene. But she's just walking by pretty pretty, pretty quick it's, with those dogs. Yeah,
2: it's just like a split second. But
0: if you pause it in the right space, you can definitely see the uh, unmistakable...
2: That's to save message. money, my friend. <laughs>
0: Erna, uh, get over here. I love working with you. Do you mind walking a bunch <laughs> of dogs? <laughs> yes, I know it's your day off, but you like working with your old friend, Jimmy. Uh, now, come on. Just get all those dogs in you, and, and just if they pull you, then you just need to reinforce your grip and say, down. <laughs> <laughs> it's I think it's awesome. It's even Universal was not a big, lavish studio. It was a, as Gloria De- Stewart described it, it was a cheap studio in the boondocks. They were not financially viable most of the time they had to cut corners the the i think the beautiful element of a lot of these monster movies is that even with the cut corners it adds something to it that you don't get in other films of this era and it's one of the reasons why the monster movies stand out because factoids like that still fascinate us to this day um and we get this whole sequence of lord byron being overtly Fascinated and cannot he can't get over this story that he's heard from this this he's bland so, and lovely brow so
2: demeaning to this woman <laughs> I'm surprised she doesn't she's like n- needle pointing I'm surprised she doesn't like poke him in the face with the needle <laughs>
0: bland he calls her bland to her face can you can you imagine that that bland and lovely brow conceived of Frankenstein, a monster built from cadavers out of rifled graves? <laughs>
2: Rifled graves.
0: Rifled okay. Rolling R's. Rolling. <laughs> the, the, look, Gavin Gordon is my the one of two things that I can think about when I think of Lord Byron. The other is here The in cod Dan- piece. Well, the cod piece. <laughs> <laughs> it's as prominent as Batman. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's amazing. Yes. I say, Ma- Mary, I could not only- I couldn't not only get over your story, but I couldn't get over your other one about a Batman <laughs> <laughs> and his humongous junk. <laughs> they, I think that it it is definitely part of that coy sense of humor and just like, or, you know, James Whale just is like, Oh my, you are very well endowed. <laughs> Come on board. <laughs> and I will tell you that there was a line of dialogue that was deleted from this film and the commentary pointed to this. And, It kind of speaks to actually Mary Shelley in an actual sense because Percy Shelley was having an affair with her at the time that the Frankenstein story was conceived. He actually left his wife, Harriet, to carouse with her and didn't marry marry Mary uh, until after... Harriet's convenient suicide, as it was pointed to in the commentary.
2: Air quotes, convenient yes. suicide.
0: Convenient. For more information on this, you can listen to Lorraine Newman's episode on Death Dead Authors podcast, where she does a very comical version of what it's like to be Mary Shelley. Um, and but the the line of dialogue that was cut for appeasement of the censors was we are all three infidels scoffers at all marriage mar- marital ties believing in loving fully and freely and, in short swingers party
2: <laughs> i love that i would love to see all the deleted scenes because there was only like 15 minutes that was deleted from this film we yeah. get most of the film
0: that they shot part of it part of that The fact that we have as much as we do is because the script was submitted in advance to the Breen office, as were other films of the era. But this one in particular went through a bunch of big, heavy revisions in order to get around certain elements of this. It was
2: real spicy, guys. It It was. It was real spicy. And
0: I have a treat for us Ballyhoo listeners. I have here a letter of correspondence courtesy of David J. Scull's wonderful book, the monster show. He provides a correspondence that James whale had with Mr. Breen. So the setup for this is whale uh, Breen again requested numerous changes. Most of which had nothing had to do with religious references and imagery, which we'll discuss later. Whale provided uh, proved to be a charming correspondent, even as the Breen office tried to boulder his film over Ever polite and eager not to be perceived as difficult, he even went so far as to remind Breen of his earlier objections that may have slipped his mind. From December 10th, 1934. Dear Mr. Breen, Herewith are the proposed changes which deal with your letter as of December 5th and also your letter of December 7th. As, however, the former letter is fuller, I think it's best to send on the letter I had written immediately after the conference as in your letter of December 5th, There are several points about God, entrails, immorality, and mermaids, which you did not bring up again. And I am very anxious to have the script meet with your approval in every detail before shooting it. All your best wishes. Sincerely, James Whale.
2: I love that the mermaids were a point of contention. (laughs) Those (laughs) saucy mermaids.
0: They didn't like
2: it. There's only a mermaid in this thing for like two seconds.
0: (laughs) It's it. You know why I love that letter, Aaron? It's it is James Whale fully describing the bullshit of any censorship. 100%. Ever. It is James Whale holding up a very polite middle finger (laughs) to Joseph Breen. And I, when you talk about the religious connotations of this film, too, in particular, Mermaid should be the last of your concerns at all at any point. But the Breen office is designed to bring up anything and everything. Every single thing that could be damning to the soul. And I do think that by the time we literally jump off into this point, one of the big things that was changed in this film, when we're talking about 15 minutes of cut footage, it wasn't just scenes. It was also trimming down scenes. And one of those big things in particular was Mary Shelley's cleavage.
2: Yeah, it was It was real naughty, that <laughs> little tiny bit of cleavage. Yeah, that little bit of it, it. It, it. And it's not even cleavage. It's really her decolletage. It's like yeah. her collarbone area. There's very little scene. But oh my gosh. Yeah, She doesn't have a collar all the way up to her nose. How,
0: how dare she... Expose any part of her body and be proud of her body. What? How? How dare she? How? How dare? I, I Aaron. I love the Golden Age of Hollywood. There are sometimes when, I, <laughs> when I hear stories like this, and I just bang my head on the table. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. It is, and it's
2: a double-edged sword because the clothes that Elizabeth wears are so revealing. Mm-hmm. The like really clingy. Silk, you I feel like you can see more of her body than you can see of Elsa Lanchester's.
0: Yeah, because Valerie Hobson is the is the emblematic version of good woman and Elsa Lanchester as both Mary Shelley and the bride is decidedly wicked and naughty. <laughs> And the censor office wouldn't allow that. They wouldn't allow a woman to be multidimensional or have a personality that wasn't just, oh no, Henry, you shouldn't shouldn't play God, blah, 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 blah. It's a double standard, double-edged sword, as you said. It is one of those implementations of the production code and of standards at the time that James Whale looks at and goes, no, not fucking dealing with that. I guess we're just going to have to find some creative pathways.
2: They made some very almost more offensive creative choices that the censors were like fine with i was very confused
0: <laughs> yeah we'll we'll get into some of those and um but first we need a recap of the first movie <laughs> i love back. that
2: they're like okay you, this movie only came out a few years before but just in case you missed it Here's a five-minute recap. Ready, set, go.
0: Aaron, you have to understand that The Bride of Frankenstein came out at a time where VHS did not exist. And I'm assuming VHS is the only format that's ever existed ever. We don't have anything on a disc or anything like that. do we? <laughs> But I feel like they replayed them in, I feel like. The Mummy re- films. Yeah. The Mummy films do that all the time because they have to remind you that Karloff was in that first one before they start going to everything with Carice.
2: And they <laughs> did a lot more double features back then. So you'd go mm-hmm. in. Here's a recap. Here's the first movie and now we're going to play this movie. Yeah,
0: exactly. And actually, um, Dracula's Daughter uh, picks up pretty much where the first one left off for the most part, Um, which, by the way, that's a wonderful movie filled with subtext. Not perfect, but really interesting to talk about. Um, And we get that recap of the first film. We also see a section of film with the funeral guard at the beginning that is not present in the first film in any existing prints, according to the commentary. So we get... Actually, a deleted scene for Frankenstein 1 in Bride of Frankenstein, a deleted shot. And then Percy Percy Shelley and Lord Byron are you still encapsulated by this story. And Mary Shelley goes like, well, that wasn't the whole fucking thing. <laughs> and she's like, I, I, I've got more for you guys. Gather around. Yeah, yeah. Have a seat. Get comfy. <laughs> yeah, guess what, guys? Uh, Mary's about to unspool an even more terrifying tale with mermaids. <laughs> with mermaids. <laughs> yeah. Who da- Trashy mermaids. Lord Byron's just like, oh, delightful mermaids. Oh, I love that. <laughs> the, the, mermaids. The, mermaids. Do they live under the sea, down where it's better and down where it's wetter? <laughs> it's, yeah, oh, God, Lord Byron. He won't leave this fucking episode. I I, I, I just imagine like, as the whole movie unfolds, him listening to it, going, and then what happened, Mary? Tell me more. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's just you want you want them to intercut at times between that, going like, yes, tell me more. <laughs> oh no, 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 that's too spooky. We gotta hold oh, the covers up.
2: They would have to pay those two a- actors for more time. Yeah, and they yeah, didn't yeah, want yeah. to do that.
0: Universal doesn't have the money for that. Are you kidding? <laughs> they open up though, and we have gotten to the end of the windmill fight at the first film, so we are kind of actually negating the ending of the first film, which. Had, which saw a conclusion where elizabeth and uh, uh henry are about to be wed and we get frank doctor frankenstein being carried off uh, seemingly dead but una o'connor god bless her soul is just like well at least the monster's dead <laughs>
2: She has some of my most favorite lines in this entire movie. She has some great one-liners.
0: I wrote some down for us today because I cannot... I cannot get enough of... Again, I cannot get enough of Munro O'Connor because she is just flat out...
2: Well, I guess she adds to the the flamboyancy of the piece, too. Her, like, camp, as we were calling it. But I, I... that's also another reason why I think this movie just is so much better than the first. She gets a lot more playtime. We see a little bit more of Una O'Connor in
0: this movie than she, we did in the first one. And she becomes our, she becomes our entry point for uh, the audiences. Like, like she becomes the audience for us, an audience surrogate, talking about the nonsense in horror movies. But she starts off with being the first horror fan ever, <laughs> because she's like, "That's the best fire I ever saw in my life." <laughs> And she she, uh, she she, makes a comment that I love. Insights is always the last to be consumed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> she not only does that, but she also gets in the Burgomaster's face, the Burgomaster played by E.E. E. Clive.
2: And he starts yelling at her about starting a riot. She's like, "I'm not starting a
0: riot." Do you not know? In fact, I, I wrote down a note that Una O'Connor is the first for, first ever um, official representative of defunding the police.
2: Yes, because of the oh way- my gosh, yeah. <laughs> she's she's not
0: she's not putting up with the burgomaster's bullshit. She's just like, now you go do your job and you do it correctly. <laughs> make sure he's dead. Yeah, drag make, him out. Yeah, exactly. And she. She revels in this. She revels in it she she even stays behind because it comes up later, but they all kind of leave the vicinity and the parents of Maria from the first film Hans. Hans
2: Hans that's and good to go Hans down there. and his wife. <laughs> and that's how they're credited in the credit. It's Hans and Hans's wife. Yep. Hans <laughs> she and... doesn't get a name. She doesn't deserve a name. No, no.
0: no, no. We we just we were we were very tired there and we had no way to make up a name for her. <laughs> i'm very very tired and it's tea time on set fun fact we broke the set for tea time because we're all from (laughs) england (laughs) and yes but he uh, hans goes down into the into the rubble where they are beneath this like he
2: doesn't he falls yeah he
0: falls yes because he's he wants to first see that the monster is actually dead he wants confirmation that that monster is dead he falls in and that's when we get the emergence of Karloff. Yes. Who, by the way, remember when I told you that fact about the uh, taking out his bridge work? Yes. Because he had the talk, he could not take that thing out to keep the makeup consistent. So that's why Frankenstein's, Frankenstein's face looks a little bit fuller. That and the fact that Boris Karloff's had time to eat and gain some weight.
2: <laughs> I also feel like in the context of the movie, he spends most of this movie like drinking And smoking cigars and eating bread. He's, like, living his best life at certain points.
0: Mm, Luxury. (laughs) (laughs) Bertoris is like,
2: cool, I'll shut him up. And he just shoves a bottle in his face.
0: Yeah, he gets actively drunk. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I know how to stop him. Booze. (laughs) So he kills Hans. And then he comes up from the rebel. Hans's wife actually, she thinks she's grabbing Hans's hand, but she's actually grabbing the monster's hand, which is a nice little indicator already we're dealing with humor in a horror movie because that's a comedy trick. That's a comedy trick of like grabbing the wrong hand. Mm-hmm. And this is something that Abbott and Costello would do for years, where Lou is responding to something, not realizing what it actually is, and doing a double take and going, "Wild
2: Those noises! chick get here!"
0: That was a good Lou Costello scare, and I like that. I've seen Um, him a time, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, It's clear. (laughs) (laughs) And And she... the monster gets ten kill- confirmed kills in this movie, and uh, and Hans and his wife are among the first two because she goes tumbling down that. Fucking yeah, chair. we
2: kill two people real fast in this movie within the first like five minutes, yeah. three minutes.
0: And arguably, Hans's wife is brutalized the most because, like, because it, it, it's a dummy falling in, in the um in the scene itself, but that dummy's head hits the fucking rocks before yeah. it goes into the water. <laughs> it's brutal, man. It's fucking brutal. And uh, this is also when Uno O'Connor realizes that the monster is there and we get that most infamous or famous, depending on how you view this performance, scream in horror history. And I'll play it for this audience right now. The scream to end all screams. I think Uno O'Connor is the first scream queen. I would not...
2: You know, I've never thought about it like that, but I'd probably get on board with that statement. I'd probably agree with that. If I mean, obviously... She is a very unique scream that I feel has been put into horror culture. It's definitely still stamped today.
0: Yeah. Now, granted, when we talk about Scream Queen, sometimes we're referring to the final girl within the 70s and 80s context. If, if the goal is just to scream the best, Una O'Connor did it first. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think we can easily put the, put it to rest she's the first screen queen all hail una and we go back to the frankenstein mansion we see valerie hobson as elizabeth Valerie Hobson, at 17 years old, is replacing May Clark, who was too sick to reprise her role from the original Frankenstein.
2: You know what? I think she does a better job. I kind of wish she, I, I, what, is this like controversial? I don't know. I think she uh, gives a great performance to Elizabeth. I don't think it's controversial. it's
0: impressive for a 17 year old. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's controversial. I just, I love May Clark in movies. So I, it's, I, the fanboy in me wants May Clark back, but. She is, she is wonderful in the movie. That is no denying that Valerie Hobson plays Elizabeth very well in this movie. I
2: feel like Mae Clark was more of a Wayfish version. I don't yeah. get a sense of strong self from her, from her Elizabeth. No. The Elizabeth in this movie is a lot more sure of herself and a lot more... Like I'm going to take control of this situation, yeah. If I can, well, we because <laughs> we, she can't really do much through most of this movie, but man, she tries.
0: She gets that one scene, that one lovely opening shot. Well, first we'll establish that Henry's Frankenstein's brought in. Uh, we think he's dead, and then uh, uh, automatically it's noticed that he's still breathing, and we get Uno O'Connor going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we get more Unisms. isms <laughs> Hashtag Uno O'Connor. She
2: does like a weird like wobble run thing that's real great. Yeah. I love it. Oh. Her facial, just every part of her body in that scene is incredible.
0: You know what I want would be the ultimate mashup? Uno O'Connor... Running away from Michael Myers in a Halloween movie. Oh my gosh, that's so <laughs> funny! I would, and then Doctor Loomis has to has to save the day, but she's like, "Stop shrieking, woman! I have to shoot Michael in the heart." <laughs> <laughs> You're too loud, <laughs> and we get we get them in bed, and at this point, let's bring up Henry Frankenstein, played by Colin. Henry, Clyde. Henry, Henry. Colin Clive had a tragic fucking life, and this is among his last movies.
2: More another person in this movie who's had a seriously fucking tragic yeah, life. Yeah, he was. He this had was a, his last. Was this his last? I think this was it, his last movie. No, his, or maybe he did one more after. But he, he did.
0: He did a couple. He did a couple more. But he had been relegated by the very end. In this same year, he also does Mad Love uh, with Peter Laurie. and. Oh another person i love yeah peter his oh, oh, oh thank you <laughs> i love peter laurie because my first one exposure was casablanca and it was simply the fact that like i despise somebody so much that i'm going to trust them my or no, first that somebody peter Lorry, despised me so much Ooh,
2: arsenic and old lace Good. i was in arsenic and old lace i love that movie did you play uh i played martha I was one of the ants. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that's got to be fun. I will gladly give people arsenic and bury them in my basement. Oh, that. Please a... don't use this against me. Against me in court. <laughs> <laughs> if you see me on the news, Mr. In five Eastman, you recorded a
0: podcast not too long ago that it expressed Aaron Mulane's <laughs> desire to poison elderly gentlemen with elderberry wine. <laughs> And bury Uh, them in her basement. Yes, uh, Your Honor, that is true she said that. But let's talk about the actual injustice here, which is that Boris Karloff wasn't cast in the movie version of Arsenic and Old Lace because that joke doesn't make sense without him being in the movie.
2: (laughs) Honestly, I think it plays a little funnier.
0: It does, yeah.
2: a little... We couldn't quite, to me, I always read it as we couldn't get Boris Karloff, so this was the next best thing.
0: And it's got a meta-textual meta joke of just like, I'm not good enough to be Boris Karloff. Yeah. Uh, and also that is, P- I think that's one of Peter Laurie's finest performances because he's actually very vulnerable in that performance. Because he's not, he's villainous, but he's not, he's he's not the primary Fear factory We
2: sympathize with him because he's the henchman.
0: Yeah, he's the henchman and he is also like, it's almost like he really wants to get out quicker than Raymond does. Yeah. He he wants to get out. And also that is a great Cary Grant performance even though it's been, Cary Grant fans seem to be hit or miss on it because they're just like, he's too fucking wacky in it. And I'm like, that's why Uh, it's great. The
2: whole thing is wacky. You have a cousin Teddy going charge.
0: (laughs) I love... Charge.
2: (laughs) I'm honestly surprised that Hollywood has not tried to redo this movie.
0: I have a maybe
2: it's a little too controversial, like murdering men and burying them in your basement because you feel bad that they're like transient. But I don't know. I we could do Mandy. We can redo *Arsenic and Old Lace*. You know
0: what I think? I've already i I've already talked about this with people that the perfect people to remake. Arsenic and Old Lace or readapt it, would be the Coen brothers.
2: Oh my gosh, yes! Yeah. That would be incredible. You
0: know, unfortunately, Ethan Coen has said he's going to stop making movies, so now it would just be Joel Coen doing it, so...
2: Uh, It'd still be pretty good, probably.
0: You know, let's see the tragedy of Macbeth coming out later this year, and we'll find out how Joel does on his own. Um, But, yes, um, Arsenic and Old Lace is a wonderful... Actually, that will be talked about in the show, because it's so wacky that you can't not talk about it. And it was Boris Karloff getting, kind of getting a, uh, a an extra boost in his career because uh, he was very successful in the and theatrical he production. he
2: didn't have to do anything. Nope. They talk about him in that entire movie or play because, yeah. I mean, it's well, literally the movie and the play are truly word for word, almost exact. There are a few more scenes in the movie actually.
0: Yeah. They, they add a little bit. Frank Capper's uh, Frank Capper's version adds a little bit more. The secret history of Hollywood series on boat on Val Luton actually touches a lot upon the making of the theatrical production of arsenic and old Lace and specifically Karloff's um, involvement in it. And then how it ties into him teaming up with Luton eventually for body Smasher, bedlam, isle of the dead and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but the when we bring up the I was going to get back to Clive for a second here because Clive had a tragic alcoholic debilitation about him by the end of this point. His alcoholism stems from the fact that he sustained an injury at a military academy, which kind of led to him becoming an actor. But he always he could never quite dull the pain properly, so alcohol consumption was big. He was also married to. Uh, he was open, it, it seems like he was bisexual, but he was married to a lesbian um, it, from, since 1917 up until his death. But they were estranged for years. And I think there's a combination of factors that makes Clive's life unbearable for him. I don't know exactly what it is. I don't know if he was conflicted by his own sexuality or how he dealt with his wife or dealt with the pain of his leg. But when you watch Colin Clive on screen, you, in this version and in the in the original, you see a tortured man hundred percent on on screen you are seeing an actually physically beaten down person and it's it makes his performance great, but you are also feeling sad at the same time knowing what he went through so like if you don't know about Colin Clive, probably all for the better because you won't be sad watching this movie. <laughs> Or you'll
2: be even more sad watching this movie because even before I knew his backstory, I always thought he was a very sad character. He always he truly looks in pain in every scene that
0: he's yeah on screen. He he literally keeps saying the phrase "leave me alone." Like it's 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 heartbreaking. Like it just I I, I don't have any other word to describe it other than heartbreaking. But I will tell you that you brought up Valerie Hobson giving it her her, her all. It's exemplified in this next scene where she and Henry are talking about the fact that Henry's reflecting on, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have meddled with trying to play God, but on the other hand, what would it be if I were God? (laughs) He wibble-wobbles back and forth between how he learned his lesson from the first movie, but how he wouldn't not be tempted back. (laughs) Like, he has an inconsistency. And Valerie Hobson's performance, where she, you know, pretends to be afraid she gives henry shit about the fact that he's wibble wobbling by pretending to instill the fear in her in him again and that scene was valerie hobson's first time meeting colin clive on the set and as you saw in the documentary but for the listeners who may not know this is their first scene together they're rehearsing it and she tumbles into bed with clive james whale walks by and goes oh valerie this is colin clive (laughs) walks away that's a great embracing in
2: bed together (laughs) hey nice to meet you too
0: or I'm going to have fun with them (laughs) and we also get here the entrance of Dr. Pretorius who by the way Uno O'Connor wonderful actress terrible at her job terrible at her job she does not even try to refuse entrance
2: no she just lets him in (laughs) he basically walks in she doesn't she just kind of opens the door
0: to be fair if ernest Sessinger came to my door and was that demanding i'd probably be freaked out too i'd be like no no you go right in ernie (laughs) you're you have carte blanche to the house right now i am no longer in control
2: her eyes say so much when she's on screen she has those Big, buggy eyes that just get extra wide mm-hmm. when she's terrified and confused. She look, she's
0: great. She looks like a bird who has gotten way too scared at times. Like it, it is like
2: striking. Shelley Duvall had the same kind of vibe. For yeah. a long Time.
0: Yeah. And like, but she- and Shelley as uh, in The Shining, Shelley Duvall is screaming not as hilariously as uh, Una O'Connor, but just as loud. Yes. Yeah. And also, that's kind of tragic. Context, to
2: but I get a very similar vibe from her performance in The Shining. Uh-huh. But again, it's a lot less it's entertaining a- oh, in the oh, funny oh. sense because it's in the context of The Shining. It's not. in
0: the context of The Shining and in the context of Stanley Kubrick being an asshole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a story for another podcast called oh. Stanley Kubrick is Not Your God. <laughs> Great filmmaker, not your God. Yeah, um, But yeah, they we get Dr. Pretorius coming in and he was a professor of philosophy but his his ideas were too dangerous for the rest of the university so he was booted out for his ideas and he is left alone with henry and he basically says you're not done with meddling with god's plan (laughs) which i think that it's funny that everybody keeps drawing i i love that the impetus of this is that it's just like we've learned our lesson for the first movie and now we're going to double down on the quote unquote, blasphemy of it all of trying to play, play God and whatnot. And really fudging with that idea because I spoke earlier in this episode about like the feminist ideals that are present in this. And skulls book has a great, I, I wanted to read this point for point because I think that this is important. Frankenstein is a visionary novel dramatizing, among many other things, a feminist writer's anxiety over scientific man's desire to abandon womankind and find a new method of procreation that does not unfold the female principle. As Anne K. Mellor points out in Mary Shelley, Her Life, Her Fiction, and Her Monsters, at every level Victor Frankenstein is engaged upon a rape of nature a violent penetration and a usurpation of the female's hiding places of the womb. Terrified of female sexuality and the power of human reproduction it enables, both he and the patriarchal society he represents use the technologies of science to manipulate, control, and repress women. The impulses is thus autoerotic, with my own hands, as Dr. Frankenstein's are usually fond of saying, all the time wringing them in glee, or is it guilt? And, or Homer erotic, life created with the help of male assistants, often cowering dwarves who are seen as sticking their heads through portals and trapdoors, who spill precocious concoctions, fuck things up, etc. And Karloff the monster, with its stalking height and rigidity, an obvious inversion erection of the shrunken assistant. Now, that's a lot of information that I've just unloaded courtesy of David J. Skull, but the bottom line is, is that. Penis and or uh, womb envy. I'm sorry, womb envy is the terminology that has been described for this. And I got to be honest, the when you have Doctor Pretorius as a character doubling down on that, the the subtext becomes absolutely clear of what James Whale is inflecting into it. Into it. Now, Curtis Harrington said that that says that that's you know like uh, first tier film school theory nonsense, but. I don't think it's unreasonable to point to James Whale being smart enough to amplify the message of the first movie about the the dangers of trying to play God and specifically trying to create life as a man. And I I I I I would love to know how you view that because I have a different perspective on it watching it as a man and I don't have the same experiences that a woman does so i i do wonder how you watch it today with under that kind of like context and i know that's a heavy question
2: clarify the question for me it's a heavy question but it's a very broad broad broad-ended question i
0: would say do you think that james whale is actively and successfully playing with uh feminist themes that do carry into today
2: absolutely yeah i think him being a gay man brings a context of femininity uh that i didn't notice as a child but as an adult through those through the those rose colored glasses you really see how he kind of holds the women in this movie on a pedestal and kind of how these men fumble throughout this whole movie to achieve a goal that a woman can do inherently exactly we don't need to mess around with playing with electricity we can just do that we can create life
0: exactly and in the in the context I like how you said the men fumble around because every-
2: they do it's like a Tom and Jerry episode unlesss <laughs> this thing they're just like constantly like, well, we got to go, we got to go to the, the crypt and we got to go to the graveyard and we got to go here and we got to go there and no one knows what's going on and, and I have to get maybe a new it'll bo- work and maybe it won't and we don't know.
0: You've yeah, got, I've got to get a, a new body. I got to get a new body. You promised me a thousand crowns. Yeah. Like yeah. it's like they're, it's cartoonish in certain respects, but in a, in a, in an appropriate way. And Pretorius doubles down on this with one of the most impactful scenes of the movie from a visual standpoint because he brings him back to his place and... In a very
2: weird way. (laughs) He's just been like literally because we're picking up right where the last movie left off because they dumped him off at home. They're like rest. Chill out. He has the scene where we introduce Elizabeth and then Pretorius comes in and is like hey I know you've had a hard day. Get your coat on. Let's go back to my place. (laughs) Like... there's been no passage of time whatsoever. I need a it's break. It's literally later on that night. <laughs> if I was Dr. Frankenstein, I'd be like, dude, give me till tomorrow. Can I rest? Come on.
0: Look, look, I need a 15 minute break, Dr. P. <laughs> <Can> you- <laughs> he literally is like, get a coat on. Let's go. Yeah. he And he drags him there and he shows him how far his experiments have gone. And this is where we get the... My, one of my favorite scenes in yeah, this movie—the the the the, sh- the 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 unveiling of Doctor Pretorius's miniature people creations—and you brought you brought it up earlier about the visual effects holding up in this. Would you like to learn a little bit more about the history of how these effects uh, are are executed? Illuminate me. All right. So these little creatures. First of all, we have James P. Fulton and David Horsley, the uh, visual effects uh, unit of this film constructing these it starts with shooting the tiny pretorius creatures over two days in full scale jars against black velvet meticulously lining up to fit the perspective of the production plates of thesinger clive and the practical jars that are on that table the foreground plate of the tiny people is rotoscoped and matted into the background plate via this is all via mcqueen's commentary the black velvet also has roots in earlier films in the Hollywood Review of 1929, we have Jack Benny pulling Bessie Love out of his pocket because of this technique, which scared the shit out of Jack Benny when he finally found out how elaborate this technique was. This same technique is arguably mastered in The Invisible Man, as mentioned earlier. So you have several actors over the course of two days being shot, in the, shot on these practical sets that are then inserted and matted carefully through dual, proje- through dual printing and dual projection there. So it's before an optical printer allows for a full collaboration of images to create something like that before Ub Iwerks perfects it for say the Disney Corporation and other studios down the line. And I, I, I love it. I love it. I love that Ther- Thesiger is not only has these creations as Doctor Pretorius. I love that he gives them little backstories. Like he's got his own little like action figure. The king and
2: the Queen and oh, we had to get the little bishop.
0: Oh, the Archbishop commenting on. <laughs> Religion, and he's I, I I love the devil one, and then we get the mermaid, the devil, the devil, devil, and and Doctor Pretorius says, "There's a little resemblance to me, don't you think? <laughs> or am I a little too, or am I a little egotistical?" And we also get the mermaid, and if you look in the uh, the wide shot, it reverses on Henry. There's a baby in there. <laughs> There's a baby in that jar that was supposed to be a character that was cut around and eliminated, but the original Thessinger line had it referring to the fact that the baby looks somewhat like Boris Karloff. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. <laughs> I think he's going to be a quite a sight to see, don't you? <laughs> that would have been hilarious. I don't think the censors would have allowed any more than what was already being shown on screen here. One line that they definitely had to get around was the fact that um, they talk about the creation of these uh The creation of life and how this is possible, or God, if you want to believe your, uh, if you want to believe your fantasies, was a line that wouldn't be allowed. So he says, or if you want to believe your Bible stories, as the compromise,
2: so much more offensive. I know, if
0: you're a Christian, I would assume,
2: yeah. But the censors were chill with that. They, they,
0: it went over their heads because they didn't want religion to be referred to directly as fantasy. But if you say Bible stories. They objectively think it's correct.
2: And on black and white paper, it probably did look a lot better. But but his performance, the Pretorious performance of that line, the absolute, like, the dripping sarcasm when he says Bible stories. Yeah, and
0: he's like, James, James, we're messing with them. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it's so much fun, isn't it, Ernest? Anyway, time for tea. And... (laughs) The, the the by the but all this is to say is that we learned that Pretorius is able to create artificial elements of it such as the brains and whatnot, but he has not perfected the elements of the body and size. That's his size. Big, size his is problem. his problem. Size is He's like hey I could yo. never <laughs> achieve size. Is what he said. And then you have whale off screen. Going, that's what he said. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> And and yes, and he's actually he refers to it as like I created from the like he cult he uh, he grew them like cultures from seed. And it's it, I love how it doesn't go too far into the science of it. He kind of gives you an, an analogy as a broad analogy of like what he's been able to do. So we don't need an elaborate backstory or uh, the origin movie of like, how did Dr. Pretorius come to be? and what was his actual experimentation because like the broad the the creation of Frankenstein himself is broad because all we need to know is electrical equipment from Kenneth and whirring and machining around somehow in Victorian London we don't it's never really clear because these movies take place in every time where electrical equipment can sit alongside of regal kings and queens of the Victorian era <laughs> I was
2: actually when I was just watching rewatching it recently thinking about that I was like what time frame is this because the the village Clothing is very like 18, 17, 18th century yeah. village stuff. But then they have electricity and Elizabeth's clothes are very stylized to the 30s. Yeah, I think it's
0: a I, I think it's an intentional mesh of the two because they well, one, the budget at Universal wouldn't allow them for anything as intricate as an MGM. So like you can't do all the expressly Uh, intricate gowns that say Edith head would create for a period piece later in the forties. But you, so in the sense, it's kind of like an every time, like, cause in Dracula, they've got cars. So like, but, but somehow these villagers at the beginning of Dracula are living in, in, in destitute and servitude and whatnot. Like Carfax Abbey lives both within the 1800s and the 1900s. It's, it's all very unclear. And, I think it actually works to the movie's benefits for universal ho- horror movies because it kind of creates an aesthetic that not everybody will try to recapture. And I think that's what makes these monster movies unique is that they do have this it's yesterday and today vibe to them. Like, it it, it could confuse you at first, but it does work ultimately in the long run. The Invisible Man runs into this, too, because they've got cars and modern conveniences and whatnot, like phones. But also everybody looks like they're dressed about fifty years outdated. <laughs> like it I think it's a I love that it's like an added benefit to the experience. Um it also could be,
2: again, we bring up money, it could be just what they had in the closet and they were like, That looks village enough.
0: Yep, exactly. Get in that, go for it. Yeah, it's like, well, this isn't a western, so we don't have any news for the cowboy hats, but some of these frills will do. <laughs> And this is where we get the impetus of the plot. But meanwhile, the monster is escaping from the previous scenes. It's about 20 minutes before we get back to to, uh, the monster here. And he's stumbling through the forest. He encounters a woman and tries to stop her screaming after she sees his face. We're doubling down on that lonely... I want
2: to bring up his face for a second because there's something that I didn't notice until... One of my most recent rewatches, and I don't know why I never noticed this until fairly recently, but his makeup changes throughout... Yes. The whole movie. There's like an evolution. That's what, going yep. back to his evolutionary performance, like the first film and the second film have to be looked at almost as one piece. His makeup changes from that first scene to that last scene. He heals his burn
0: scars throughout the movie. Yeah, because uh, you watch the same, we, we watch the same behind-the-scenes documentary did. where Joe Dante's talking she's awkwardly. She's alive <laughs> Yes, yeah, she, the documentary. She's alive. The, one of the historians said he goes through five stages of regeneration like four or five stages of regeneration the initial rick baker points to the fact that initially he has like burns on his cheeks
2: and his hand
0: yep and he heals which also goes into another blasphemous element of this film which is the christ allegory he kind of like regenerates not too dissimilarly from how a jesus would regenerate and Mm -hmm. emerge from the cave three days later and you're right it 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 actually makes the film more fascinating to watch because you do watch that makeup evolve and change and grow.
2: He has the most character growth. Yep. And and to me personally, he the Frankenstein monster has the most character growth of any of the universal monsters. I agree. Mm- because like the Invisible Man, he's pretty manic most of the time. <laughs> Dr. Jekyll, Mister Hyde, also fairly manic most of the time. There yeah. isn't like a a clear beginning, middle, and end to these people. They are they get up to their one note and then they kind of stay there. Dracula is very much the same. Yeah, Dracula in the very first Dracula movie and the subsequent sequels are all the same person.
0: Yeah, and Invisible Man, whenever he when he does learn a lesson, it's at the absolute last minute and too late, and that's when. You know, he dies and you have uh, you brought up Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I rewatched the Frederick March one not too long ago. The the big one by Robert Robert mm-hmm. You know, he learns a lesson, but it's like it's within the last like five to ten minutes of the movie. And it's just it's a it's a big switch.
2: It's a lot of a throwaway. And Boris Karloff's lessons. You see him learning. You see him taking these. Terrible things that have happened to him since his birth, and he tries to change his cards, so to speak.
0: He tries to save that woman, and she screams so loud that the other villagers catch up to him. Mm -hmm. They tie him to a post, raise that post in—I'm not going to lie. It's almost as if it's a Jesus— metaphor there's a lot of jesus metaphors oh yeah no i don't I'm, I'm, in this maybe. i'm being very coy yeah there there yeah this is one of those obvious references that gets past the censors and whatnot another one was him walking through the graveyard later on in the film and he would be trying to help the 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 jesus figure on a statue of jesus on the cross trying to help him down they had to replace that shot with him knocking over the statue of a bishop.
2: Which, again, more offensive than him, I to me, more offensive than him trying to help down an impoverished person. <laughs>
0: hey, Jimmy, Jimmy, we're fucking with them some more, aren't we? <laughs> oh, yes, we are. And, uh, yes, we are. <laughs> um, and this is where we get him imprisoned in chains. Una O'Connor. And uh, one
2: of my favorite Uno O'Connor lines, when she turns to the guy and she's like, oh, I'd hate to see him in the daytime. <laughs> i like, oh my gosh, what a burn get it girl
0: <laughs> that's what we call an o'connor sizzle if you will you know just like it's it's just the the, the perfect it's the perfect touch of heat <laughs> and she and she yells at the burgomaster make sure you do your job and make sure he stays in there <laughs> And we get him She's also probably the first
2: Karen, if we're being honest. Yes. She's definitely the first Karen. Yeah,
0: exactly. But she but she is aware that she is a Karen because yes. Una O'Connor in real life is not a Karen. No, she would not, not at be all. a Karen, no. Not even by close stretch. This particular character though. No, yeah, no. She is she, see the people who are Karen's today watch her performance wrong. Kinda like how fuckboys watch Goodfellas the wrong way. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I we we get that image of Karloff chained up, which you see parody later on in Young Frankenstein and different elements of it. We have Peter Boyle standing still and whatnot. We see a very, very, very tortured Boris Karloff getting out of his restraints and him escaping back into the woods. And the aesthetic and the set design of these woods changes depending on the mood. So like when he's escaping into conceivably a new life. It's a little bit more lush of a forest when he's having to escape later on from the hermit's cave. Everything's kind of desolate. Everything feels uh, hopeless in that forest. And that's intentional design by James Whale with the art director.
2: He was very proud of that design. Yeah, he, he was. like when it was all done, he brought Elsa Lanchester out and he was like, Look, look at these trees. They're dead. And she was like, Cool, dude.
0: Uh, Elsa, look what I've done. I am not I'm not saying that I'm good because that would just be way too much blasphemy. But I am a genius. And Elsa's like, Cool, bro. Peace.
2: <laughs> Let me know when my cue is. Yeah, exactly.
0: So. Yeah, exactly. Is it time for me to be on set? Yeah. yeah. Charlie and I want to go feed the geese. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, we get him to the hermit. To the hermit. Which, which is
2: another one of my most favorite scenes in any of cinema. I think a lot of cinemaphiles would probably agree. This is a truly touching scene.
0: I, I agree. He is the O.P. Heggy. Plays the hermit. And we know, I think, and this isn't a detriment to this fact. I think that our first exposure to this idea starts with Gene Hackman in Young Frankenstein.
2: I know. It's really hard for me sometimes to watch Bride of Frankenstein <laughs> and not transpose young frankenstein into some of these scenes because in my mind they're kind of the same movie a little bit
0: and this scene in particular is the most like absolutely we think that soup's gonna fall in boris Karloff's crotch yeah we light his
2: thumb on fire (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) i'm giggling just thinking. (laughs) i love the last line gene ackman gives where he's like where are you going i was gonna make espresso
2: It's, at I least at least Gene Hackman's like hermit guy has a little bit better of an ending than the hermit in this movie. He
0: does, yeah. It's tra-
2: I feel really bad for the hermit in this movie.
0: Yeah, he gets knocked of shit around I-
2: and then the two like villager guys set fire to his, his house.
0: Yeah. At least Gene Hackman still had his place when Peter Boyle came around. Right. Yeah.
2: Peter Boyle left. His house was still standing. He could still make espresso at the end of the day. Yeah. This other guy, he's not doing anything anymore.
0: One thing that I will say, and this is talks about how we see things in later films down the line, Young Frankenstein is the obvious reference point for this. But Gene Hackman is kind of genuine to the O.P. Heggie performance because he's not... Doing, the comedy is coming on accident. That's part. Of, that's because of direction. He's doing the same amount of sincerity as O.P. Heggie is in there. Absolutely. And Heggie's playing the violin when Frank wa- Frankenstein's monster walks in. It's uh, that's another thing. Like it's not Frankenstein. It's the monster. Um, although, are they one and the same? That's part of the duality of this novel.
1: Whoa. Oh my
0: God! It's why. It's why that Benedict Cumberbatch play from the <laughs> 2010s was so innovative. Um, the uh, We get him in here, and we give the monster, for the first time, a genuine love and care and compassion given to him. And we get the lines of, it is bad to be alone, alone, bad, friend, good. He 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 says, like, I know you, I will, I will comfort you, or I will... I will protect you and you will come for me. And we have him getting him to bed and lying down and the scene fades out into the next day. We have that image of the cross burned in there. It turns into a matted effect to keep the cross in there through the dissolve. That's another allusion to the allegory where it's super quick and you miss it because the censors were worried about that too. And then we get eating soup, smoking a cigar as I said before, we get the alone bad friend good um, and the other one about fire bad. And he says uh, 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 he he says a line about good bad and re- there, there is good fire like there is like he's trying to teach him that some things that are conceived as bad are also good, which lays further into the allegory of the monster being a sympathetic creature which he has been this entire time even as far back as that first one
2: he i guess he could be considered as an anti-hero in this in this context
0: yeah i think it definitely for the era i feel like from the modern context we've learned to see him much more as the hero oh yeah definitely because like cuz you could like but like at the time like yeah it's like it's like it's hard to read on how audiences initially perceived some of these horror films, to my mind, because you could make the same argument for King Kong where everybody saw him as the villain first, but there had to be people early, early on in the 30s itself watching it and latching on to the sympathy for King Kong or the sympathy for Frankenstein. And some of them are interviewed and they confirm that, but I wonder if how many of them are witnessing that after uh, after seeing it on television for the first time as a kid. I would love to read or go back in time to a screening of Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein, and engage the conversation with an audience member about like who's the hero of this movie, like get a, like an on the on site report <laughs> because I feel like it would be mixed because it is like a Rorschach de- determining on like what what is your ability to sympathize and empathize? Can you see the monster as you would see yourself? Can you see yourself in the monster? Can you relate to the monster? If you don't, it says something about your ability to be sympathetic or empathetic. If you can, it means you're a well-rounded human being who understands that there's nuance and dimensions. Right. And this is something that the two villagers who interrupt the monster and the hermit's wonderful time don't understand because they only see him as a monster, and it also takes them more than a bu- more than a couple of seconds to realize he's there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and honestly, the end of that scene is even more hard they that scene is so deep and ha- and it is so short. Yeah. It's only a couple of minutes and their interactions are just so poignant. And Karloff, his like realization at what friendship is. Yeah. Is is in about ten seconds. He's born- And it's really, really, really monumental for the rest of the film
0: we talked about theater performances not too long like not too long in the conversation ago like theatrical performances stage performances stage you're broad you're big you're playing to the house on screen you have to be intimate you have to be able to use your face Karloff has had enough experience in film that by the time he gets to the monster even in the first one he knows how to use his face in a way that I love the dialogue but you wouldn't even need the dialogue because you see it all on his face you see the transformation on his face. That's and
2: that's why I think he didn't want to have dialogue in the second one. I think the dialogue, this is a few times where the dialogue really just made the performance that much more. It yes. didn't take away, even though that's what he thought it never took away and made it even more rich.
0: Yeah. He's like, fine, I'll do it. But as long as he doesn't rap at the end of this movie, <laughs> I don't think I could do gangsta's paradise <laughs> in this grunting. <laughs> um, you're, you're right. He, I I see both ends of the coin for Karloff in his perspective of whether or not the monster should talk. It it's we as an audience, like you and I just already said we love it. There is a part of me that understands why Karloff wouldn't want to go down that road. Like it, it, it makes sense. But at the same time because of the way he learns to speak as the monster, because he doesn't use his accent, really.
2: He's very much Silent Bob. When he <laughs> speaks, when he speaks, it is very much to the point, and it's just like, let's get down to brass tacks.
0: The sign on the back <laughs> of the car says Critters of Hollywood, you dumb fuck. I mean, alone bad, friend could. I would love a Frankenstein movie with Boris Karloff where he's in a train sequence he throws a guy off a train then he turns around to somebody and goes no ticket <laughs> 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 walks away or <laughs> I got that I love the Silent Bob analogy thank you for bringing Kevin Smith into this conversation because that warms I my try heart. to bring Kevin
2: Smith into many conversations <laughs> if I
0: can he, Funnily enough there's like there's there's allusions you can make to Kevin Smith's later career with with something like this um, but we will talk about that at the end Meanwhile, though, the villagers have tossed the monster out. They burn the hermit's house down, as you already said. Well, they don't
2: toss the monster out. They burn the house down with the monster in it. Yeah, with the monster in it. And drag the hermit out. He doesn't even have time to grab his violin.
0: No, he doesn't. Which, how is he going to make a fucking living as a blind man if he doesn't have his violin?
2: He doesn't have a house now. He doesn't (laughs) have
0: a violin. (laughs) That's when he becomes a monster seeking revenge. Right.
2: That's his John Wick journey. No.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, my friend. The hermit. I, I guess I am twenty-two. Everybody keeps asking the hermit if he's back. And yeah, I guess I'm fucking back. <laughs> <laughs> OP Haggy and Hermit Wick. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> They killed my friend Boris, and I want revenge. <laughs> Imagining the most elaborate kung fu action sequences with the Hermit instead of Keanu Reeves. That's incredible. <laughs> Ian McShane is still uh, I- I- integral to the story in this uh, supposed spin off movie. <laughs> 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 and Lawrence Fishburne does pop up at one point as, a, as a hobo in command of a home. God, the John Wick movies are great. They're just a video game that I never got in my actual life. Um, but yes, and as we get the monster further out He, we see, him ex- we see him desecrating the grave hiding from people searching for him he finds his way into a crypt he scares some kids along the way he does yes
2: honestly I feel like most kids would probably look at the monster with curiosity more than
0: funny terror you, funny you bring that up the little girl who prayed Maria in the first one there's a story that Adam Roach tells and it's a story that's been told about in all of these, but I love the way Adam Roach does this. He describes it as Karloff in this makeup. The little girl playing Maria comes up to him and Karloff is uh, anticipating scaring this little girl. Like she's going to be scared. And instead the little girl playing Maria looks up at him with curiosity and just goes, Will you ride with me to set? Because <laughs> they're going to the, ri- the, to the river. And Karloff goes, absolutely. Over the course of a car ride there, it's the monster and this little girl being the best of friends. It's such a beautiful sign of how the children read the monster from an early age. Because when I said I was terrified by him as a kid, it was more just like it, the confusion. Like he doesn't know what he's doing.
2: You were terrified of the context. Yeah. That's exactly. what kids get terrified. They get terrified of the context. Yeah. Or what adults are doing. If adults are scared, then the children will be scared. But if the child isn't being told to be scared, yeah, they're going to be more curious than anything else.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that one of the indicators at, from the first one is obviously the, the, the river. And one of the things that scares you is not that he throws Maria into the river, but he's... He's trying to figure out how to save the situation after he throws Maria in because he has regret on his face. He doesn't
2: understand. He generally, genuinely does not know that she is not going to come back up.
0: No, she doesn't. Why is she
2: not like that flower? The
0: flower did it. Yeah. It's it's heartbreaking when you think about it. And when he's going into this crypt, he's at his absolute loneliest. And... But don't worry, he won't be lonely for long because Dr. Pretorius and two of his henchmen are. (laughs) And
2: another great scene. (laughs) This scene, because who, you know what? You know what I like to do on the weekends? I like to have picnics and catacombs. (laughs) <laughs> he literally brings out a picnic basket. So he's like, "I got my sandwich, I got my wine, I got a candle. I'm ready for some me time, some self care down in the script right now."
0: He, he does now. Before that, though, he does interact with his henchmen. One of which is, uh, w- one of which is Fritz, played by Dwight Fry. Uh, it, Dwight Fry. Dwight Fry gets brought back. From the first film as a different character because James Whale liked working with him. Dwight Fry, brilliant character actor. His character in this film initially had a bigger subplot. He
2: plays more than one character in this film.
0: Yes. And the Carl character in particular had a backstory that was cut out of it was a subplot that was cut out of this film where he had an uncle and an aunt that he killed and then framed the monster for it. He would say the monster did it. The monster killed my uncle and aunt. I'm glad they cut it out because it I was about
2: to say the same thing because I don't really think it does anything for the story. It's just James. Well, trying to give this one particular actor more lines, Would which you... as an actor, I appreciate if you give me more lines. Yeah, but it does nothing for the final product.
0: Yeah. And what's more, Carl as a character is better with the with the limited things he's given to do because he feels all the more creepier that way. Especially when he's like, "You promised me a thousand crows
2: Honestly, and I kind of forget that the the goer character from the first movie dies. Yeah, because he's still the creepy henchman, and I I have so much sus- suspension of disbelief at this point. I'm just like going along with the ride.
0: Oh yeah, no yeah. It, when they reuse actors like this so much in these mo- in the Universal Monster movies, I'm not put off by it i'm charmed by it it's it's kind of like the views you brought up kevin smith it's like the viewers universe we know ben affleck played another character in Mallrats, but here in chasing amy he's having actual problems right yeah Yeah. you just kind of go along with the fun journey of these like uh edward van sloan playing every single knowledgeable doctor within the first three big universal monster movies he's like he's he's our uh, he's my one of my favorite unsung heroes of it because he doesn't get talked about a bunch but he plays van helsing he plays Henry's mentor in the first one, and he plays the knowledgeable doctor in The Mummy. He had this kind of niche for Universal early on, and Dwight Fry has the same thing. People want to use Dwight Fry because he's Dwight motherfucking Fry. and in this film, I think he gets among his best since Dracula to do, because in, in First Frankenstein, he's kind of like, he gets killed pretty quick. He does. And he's most memorable because he is that hunchback assistant, which then gets perfected by Bella in Son of Frankenstein, Curse of Frankenstein, and Ghost of Frankenstein.
2: I think he gets a better death in this particular movie yes he does <laughs> his death and this
0: one's pretty great i it, like it's it's epic in the first one he's kind of just hung like you just yeah. see that silhouette yeah, dangling no, this one's great this one's great but before he dies yes he they are working for pretorius they leave pretorius alone to have his picnic in the crypt <laughs> and the music in this film we haven't talked much about Fra- waxman's score but like each character has their own motif in this one in particular, he's adding an, a, an additional, like, drunk factor to it. Like He is, yeah. Adding a little bit of a jaunty jolly, but it also feels like it's hitting on the dance of the macabras, as was described by the behind-the-scenes feature. And that does show, because it does feel odd. And it feels like Danny Elfman watched this movie more than once for yes, his scores. oh my
2: gosh, <laughs> yes.
0: Biddly, biddly, bum, bum, bum. Blip, 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 Tim, I got a new score. Great. <laughs> Put it in. Uh, yeah, and then we get the monster coming in, and <laughs> Pretorius is not afraid of the monster. <laughs> I love that he is not afraid. He's just like, oh, come on in. <laughs> I, do, I wouldn't expect him to be afraid. No. He's already shown Frankenstein little miniature people. He has no fear in him at all at this point. I, he is our protagonist
2: or I mean our antagonist in this movie yes 100% he is the bad guy yeah, the, so to speak
0: that's that's the trick that James well is playing with the audience is that you would ex- expect the monster to be the villain but actually Dr. Pretorius is the villain and we talked about like would the audience view Frank and a Frankenstein's monster in a sympathetic light if it's going to be any movie that they do that it's here because in almost every other movie he has much more of a villain complex put into him Unless he's dealing with Bella Lugosi's Igor in the later films, because Igor is decidedly the villain in those movies. Yeah, um, but this is the most on its nose, and Pretorius accentuates that villainy by manipulating the monster mentally. And we get one of my favorite lines in movie history: "Where uh, uh, do you know Henry Frankenstein? Yes, he made me from dead. I love dead, hate living." And Dr. Pretorius goes, you're wise in your generation. <laughs> I don't know how that got past the censors either. <laughs> right?
2: Some of the lines in this movie are like, you really let that one fly? Okay. All right.
0: We're, we're, we're just talking with him, <laughs> Yeah. That no, was great. And and we get the, the, the impetus of the plot, which is that Pretorius is going to use the monster to his advantage to he- have Henry finish up these experiments and to create a mate for the monster. And we get the exempli- exemplification of this by Pretorius coming back to Henry's home, going like, will you still do these experiments with me? And Henry goes, no, I've changed my mind. Cause I keep wibble- wibbling. No, no. And he, and he goes, I expected this. That's why I brought in some help. And he open, the door opens. Karloff comes in and he goes,
1: Frankenstein.
0: You're Frankenstein. I'm the monster. Everybody gets a fucking wrong." <laughs> <laughs> um, and he, I love the line. He's like, there have been developments since I came into the picture. <laughs> <laughs> giving this like wink to the audience of just like, you know, like, and we we all the fun sassy yeah.
2: flamboyant lines come from pretorius pretorius like, i don't really think this movie would have the like quote unquote as big of a gay element if pretorius wasn't so like outwardly flamboyant and yeah. he is truly swishy flamboyant in this he makes it as big as possible
0: and we say this with all love and respect because and I want to clarify that because like it the way we like say that word flamboyant, sometimes people take that as a detriment. I look at this always as a positive within Golden Age Hollywood because they get away with so much shit. Hitchcock does
2: this all the time. As we were talking about earlier, I never took it as flamboyancy until adulthood. Yeah. I always took it as like campy vaudevillian acting. Yes. Th- more than flamboyancy. It wasn't until I was told, "Oh yeah, James Whale wanted to make this movie really gay." That I went and I saw that. Yeah, I just took it as we're going to make this movie as big as possible.
0: And I and there is a there's a I feel like there is a um, a poignancy to Curtis Harrington's quote on how people perceive the film as a as uh, as gay uh gay lined or gay subtext he said that like, you know, I think we would, I think the, the more appropriate term is camp. And I think that is absolutely appropriate because camp is something we don't fully learn about until we're older because we have to tune into it and adapt our senses to camp. And I think that camp is a perfect way to describe this because you learn about sending something up while keeping sincere to the project, kind of like what the Batman TV show was. It didn't it didn't stray from the sincerity of a Batman character, but it had a lot of fun with it. It had a lot of fun with it. And, you know, it's the kind of campiness that I think makes somebody like John Waters enduring because he adds transgressive elements into it and creates something that is uh, something that James Whale would have watched and went, well, that's a little too far, John, but I really enjoyed this. (laughs) I, you know
2: what, if we could just like get a bunch of people dead and alive at a table together Jimmy Whale and John Waters would be one hell of a table to sit at.
0: I want that to be, you know, one of those like Legend on Legends yes. series. <laughs> you have John Waters talking to James Whale. I think the internet would explode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if we can get another person from the dead in there, Divine and Boris Karloff. <laughs>
2: yes. Yes. That would be quite the table talk.
0: <laughs> Karloff, are you ready to die for art? <laughs> <laughs> I really have no idea what you will think, young man, by my, your audacity.
2: <laughs> Just as long as it doesn't include poop, I'm in.
0: <laughs> I would love to watch a... Re- you know how re- people have reaction videos to do Girls One Cup or like anything insane on the internet? James Whale reaction video to divine-eating dog shit and pink flamingos. <laughs> oh. Oh, my. Oh well, that's, that's original. <laughs> you kind know? of you think like, how would he perceive what camp has become today? And at this time, you know, camp comes from key phrases and dialogue. You can actually see a little bit of camp being further added down the line with somebody like Peter Lorre in the Maltese Falcon, because mm-hmm. the character is coded as gay of Joel Cairo, but you can't mention that out loud. So Houston gets around it by, adding small things in the script to allude to it. Whereas in Hammett's novel, he's pretty much, it's pretty much on the nose here. You have to code around it. And I think that that's camp that's appropriate for it. And Houston would do that later with beat the devil, which is Truman Capote writing the script. So of course it's going to have that element to it when it's beat the devil, um, which will be talked about down the line. Cause it's amazing. It's amazing. That movie works. Um, But that's where we get this plot set up is that Pretorius is now going to, in order to further incentivize Henry, he's going to kidnap Elizabeth. He kidnaps Elizabeth. The monster takes her away. And uh, Pretorius goes like, Elizabeth is alive and well, but you have to finish your experiments with me before Elizabeth comes back. And we see... Uh, an expedited uh, or a longer, actually, a longer version of like what it takes to make a monster. Because we kind of get expedited in the first Frankenstein. Here we get a little bit more detail, like how's the heart going to function. There's a little
2: bit more struggle in this movie. We take a little bit more time.
0: Exactly, and we learn like one heart's not going to work. We need another one. We need a fresh body, and that's when we get my favorite line: "You promised
2: a thousand crowns." Uh, well, actually, we're coming up to uh, the scene that I literally just my last rewatch when I rewatched it this morning, I never realized that they're implying that they go out and murder someone.
0: Oh, really?
2: Yes. So there's, they go and the heart isn't working. And Clive is like, Oh, oh, I just, I need to rest. I can't do it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, I need a young, fresh heart. And uh pretorius and fritz go out well he's not fritz in this one no he's uh he's uh, he's uh, he's, a carl carl Carl, this one and they go out and they carl starts telling the doctor about where they get this heart and that it's it was some lady and blah 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 he gets cut off by dr pretorius and he's like No, no 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 we don't need to discuss that now yeah i'm like oh dang They just went out and murdered somebody.
0: So let me ask you a question, because I actually just watched this at Film Club today before we came to our discussion. Have you seen the movie The Body Snatcher with Boris Karloff?
2: Not in a really long time, but the answer is yes.
0: Okay, so like, I was, it's fine, I'll refresh you with, because the sequence where Carl goes out to find the girl, that scene ends up getting perfected by Luton and Robert Wise in The Body Snatcher, when Karloff goes after the woman who's walking down the tunnel, and then you hear her singing suddenly stop because her voice stops. And I love the Body Snatcher element of movies sometimes, because it's, it's it's one of those things that still terrifies me. The idea that you're just picked off off the street for medical science. <laughs> like, it's it's creepy. And it's funny, because Mary Gordon, who's in this movie as Hans's wife, she ends up meeting Boris Karloff later on as uh, as the as the elderly woman whose son has been whose son is dead and his body gets exhumed by Boris Karloff's character in the body snatcher Mary Gordon also the original Mrs. Hudson from the Sherlock Holmes series. So quite a legend just wrapped up in that one character that didn't get a name. She didn't get a name. Hans' <laughs> wife. Also Mrs. Hudson. We could just call her Mrs. Hudson. <laughs> 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 she died before she could assist Sherlock Holmes and Watson. <laughs> um, but I love, that, I love that you bring that up because I didn't realize that people might have not clued into it right away I got it pretty quick when I first saw this movie because of him cutting him off but like I could see that like not reading right away because it is like you're not really thinking about the dialogue sometimes when you first watch these movies I feel
2: and the other two performers are so big in their performance yeah his line is almost a throwaway
0: exactly yeah Because you're you're
2: getting on, we're getting on with it. We've got the heart now. Let's get, let's get going. Let's move it. Let's move the plot along. Exactly. His line really is kind of a toss away. He says it almost under his breath and it it just gets cut off and we're moving along very quickly. No one even acknowledges
0: that he talks. Exactly. He's, Pretorius is aware that like these small details don't matter and also I don't need Colin Clive freaking out. And that's also when we get around this time, the scene of Elizabeth talking over this, we talked about timelessness of the setting of this film and we don't know exactly when this is. There's a radio that suddenly pops up.
2: Yeah, that really seems (laughs) out of place in this castle that has a bunch of candles lit and stuff and this magical device her voice
0: is going to come through it it's called an iphone <laughs> <laughs> oh no nope, you pressed the wrong button that's a facetime call we don't have time for that <laughs> and all the money and that's also when we get that you brought up the scene of frank uh, frankenstein's monster getting drunk because of but he
2: get, the first time he gets drunk is back in the cabin. Right. That's but- when he gets hammered the first time. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm yeah. into this. Yeah. And then Pretorius gets him drunk and he's like, okay, I can hang out with this guy. He's got the booze. And so later, the last yes. time. Yeah. And I also forgot that not only does he get him drunk in this last scene, but he drugs him. He tosses real quick. It's just—it's another one of those split second. If you are not—if you yeah. literally blink too slow or too fast, you're gonna miss it. Yeah. But he throws a little dash of some sort of powder in the, in the wine. And is and like, here you go, Frankie. And, and
0: it also—he is when he does that with the with the monster. He, he you you get that further indication of like clearly you cannot not sympathize with the monster. You can't not not sympathize with. Boris Karloff here it's in it's it's unavoidable and it's doubled down by so we get the creation of the bride itself which features the reemergence of Kenneth Strickfadden's amazing e- laboratory equipment that does absolutely nothing for science
2: <laughs> and is so wobbly every scene I look at that equipment where they're trying to like hoist it up I'm like oh I feel bad for the person who had to build that and try
0: to make it look stable. Kenneth Strickfaden is just like careful. I took a lot of time to make that shit work. <laughs> and that, by the way, Kenneth Strickfaden had a lot of that stuff still in his laboratory. Like by the time he passed away, and one, but Rick Baker said that, like you know, like some of that equipment was in a place where he could have probably. St- 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 Sift, sifted through it and gotten some and he didn't take it up on the opportunity to uh, grab that equipment. Fun
2: fact to bring up Young Frankenstein again. All in you know this. Yep. <laughs> all of the equipment in Young Frankenstein is the original Frankenstein yep. equipment. Yep, it's
0: Strict Fadden's equipment. He's credited in the opening credits like special thanks to the to kind of Fadden for the original Frankenstein props and materials and settings. And Which makes that movie to me,
2: it makes it in canon. You can't talk about Bride of Frankenstein, without talking about Young
0: Frankenstein, I because agree. they
2: are uh, two sides to the same coin to me, and
0: it means even though it's from 20th Century Fox, a studio that no longer exists, by the way, uh, it means that Peter Boyle is a universal monster, and I love that idea. It also makes he is a
2: great s- sympathetic Frankenstein as well.
0: I agree. With that scene where Gene Wilder. Cradles him in his arms and he's crying and he says, "This is a face a mother could love, only a mother, only could a love. mother could love." And, and <laughs> I love when he's like he's making the bold proclamation right before he says, "My name is Frankenstein." You can see Peter Boyle like genuinely like awed by Gene Wilder in that scene. It's that same look of awe that Boris Karloff gives at certain moments in this movie, especially with the hermit. Everybody draws off of this movie because it is a standard. This and the original, any of the original ones with Karloff in it, you are drawing off of a prime example that means something to our cinematic language. And it's further exemplified by the creation of the Bride, which, first of all, we, as I said, we had the laboratory equipment. We also get the deaths of these henchmen. Carl getting his incredibly Getting
2: yeeted ye- off the top of a yeah <laughs> castle RIP In- <laughs> Dwight <laughs> and the bo- I love the body cuz it's like you can tell they didn't have a ton of time to fill this prop with as much like <laughs> stuffing as they needed because it flops like really awkwardly as Boris Karloff kind of chucks it off the side of the building. Yeah. It's great. It's you, awesome.
0: c- you can tell. And it, but it also, and I love that it doesn't like, even if you notice it, it's not like it doesn't deter because you are just like it, the scene itself is insane because they're on top of the roof of the castle and they're fucking like, to me, like it it is an exemplary of like these older techniques that we use for like body doubles or even you know, you know, just dolls being t- chucked in the in the river. you li- you you believe it. You absolutely believe it. Your brain is tuned to just believe what's going on. And I think that's something that doesn't fully exist today because we have to have, I feel like when a dead body falls now, unless it somehow is a stunt. You're using a CGI proxy, yeah. and it does, It looks too slick. It doesn't feel imperfect. I think I need it to be imperfect to believe it. Agreed. It, yeah. I, that
2: goes back to my ever rant about practicality effects yeah. versus the CGI effects. It, I mean, there's always... The reality is when something falls from gravity, it's going to look different.
0: It doesn't look like a graceful swan dive. Like, I love... I love the moment in Endgame where Scarlett Johansson sacrifices herself, but the fall is just so overtly like operatic and dramatic that it doesn't feel real to me. It doesn't feel lived in. It doesn't doesn't do anything for me necessarily. the The intent of her character makes makes me feel something, but that movement does not. That doesn't do anything for me, and I think that that is important a distinction to make because. The last time I feel we got this correctly was Peter Jackson because he was using practical things in Lord of the Rings. So if somebody fell, you could see a person actually falling, or you would see occasionally see a CGI person falling in wider shots. But if somebody falls in a Lord of the Rings movie, more often than not, they are falling because they had a limited budget, like compared to what he would get for The Hobbit. Yeah, so you would see a lived-in feel to it that doesn't exist anymore. I think when a Star Wars movie of the recent. Um, output does it correctly, you notice that it's a practical effect or a practical person doing a stunt. And I don't think you get we it's it's few and far between whether for safety reasons or for just the way times have changed to where we need computer imagery. It's more cost effective to use a computer. You don't have
2: to pay a stunt person who's gonna say, okay, well if this is so dangerous and you got to pay me this extra amount of these thousands of dollars for this dangerous stunt that could kill me. Yeah. It's a lot safer to use CGI. That's the toss up. That's the 21st century toss up. Yeah. Do we save, do we value safety and our actors or are we valuing the authenticity and the reality of the final product?
0: Right. Which is, I think depending on the filmmaker will determine what answer you get because there are some filmmakers who are absolutely insistent on keeping it, Within the actual stunt range, like the John Wick movies are built upon showing you actual stunts. That's that's kind of like their wonderful bread and butter right now. I feel uh, that and the fact that Keanu Reeves is great, but you are watching a stunt affair, and that's what Quentin Quentin Tarantino did with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He was celebrating actual stunts in that movie, as well as Death Proof. You know, like he does. He, the less CGI he could use, the better. George Miller uses a lot of CGI in Mad Max Fury Road, but a lot of people are fucking falling for real. <laughs> yeah. And it's insane when you watch those behind-the-scenes videos. Um, so we get the creation of the bride. The bride is created. We unwrap those bandages on her eyes first. We get this pier- her piercing eyes, Elsa Lanchester's piercing eyes. And we get... Henry Frankenstein says part of his catchphrase, she's alive,
2: alive. I love the scene in Gods and Monsters where they're doing like the behind the scene of this moment. and I'm so glad you brought up that movie. I fucking
0: love that movie.
2: (laughs) I am surprised we haven't brought it up. I was kind of holding it for the end, but thank you. Thank you. I love Gods and Monsters. And it's really hard for me to see anything other but other than Ian McKellen, as James Whale, well, because he's such a good James Whale. Yeah, that's um, why I'm
0: kind of trying to do his voice for it, because it's the only way I can picture James Whale. The
2: Pretorius says, oh, we dressed her and we did her hair. We must be a couple of queens, Colin. <laughs> and I love that line. That's so funny. And you,
0: The actor playing Colin gives a distressed look. <laughs> In that moment, he's just kind of like,
2: I don't know what don't you're talking know, about. I don't know.
0: I don't know how to respond to that. And you see Elsa, the girl playing Elsa Lanchester in the middle, going. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's so great, but yeah, they would. They had. They had two dudes definitely dressed that woman. Oh yeah. They just threw some sheets on her, like, okay, girl, go.
0: <laughs> no time to waste. No time to waste. You don't need to make this an elaborate yeah. production. <laughs>
2: he doesn't need you looking your best self you're, you're,
0: go for it you're a woman he'll just automatically go hello <laughs> and you're right because I, I'm i glad you brought that up and we'll com- it will come up again later because Gods and Monsters is also instrumental for us carrying on Whale's legacy especially um, but they, 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 we cut to another scene and we unveiled the bride in her full glory and we get Pretorius' wonderful line
1: the bride of Frankenstein
2: And there's a big, he gives a very, like, elaborate swish of his arm. A very grand, here she is, (laughs) sort of gesture.
0: Here she is. She has her own
2: little little toot, toot, toot. She has a little three note.
0: Yes, I'm glad you brought that up, because she has a three note kind of, like, swaying thing.
2: It's very, it's so out of place from any other of, because like you said earlier, every one of the characters kind of has their own sort of like theme music within the movie. Yeah. It all has kind of the same tone to it. Yeah. This tone is completely different. Yeah. It's very bright and open and light and airy and a completely different, almost optimistic tone. I was going to say elegant too. It's
0: elegance because like, and you hear small intonations of this when Frankenstein is hearing about the prospect of a mate, too, you hear that kind of like Wah. that, which is another intonation that I feel gets carried over into John Morris's score for Young Frankenstein because yes. that violin hits those similar notes. And also, consequently, as she is a three note, the monster has this four note uh, indicator that falls in line with the grunts. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of like it, it, it's. It, it's it's to exemplify his brute force a little bit, I guess. It's like Franz Waxman is doing similar to what Max Steiner does for King Kong. Uh, this is not a denigrating term to me. Mickey Mousing. Yeah. He is he is playing along to the image, and the reason why I don't find it denigrating is because this is an one. This is for the time. This is a good indicator to emotionally involve you in the score and in the characters. But also, if you listen to the score of this movie on a record, which is now from Waxworks, it's a beautiful thing to listen to on its own. You don't even need the movie in certain respects. You could just listen to that music, and you could play the film in your head. Yeah, it's it's gorgeous. And then we get Frank, uh, Frankenstein's monster comes in, and he goes, "Hey, babe," and <laughs> and he doesn't do that. He he goes, "Friend, friend,"
2: and it's so heartbreaking too. Mm-hmm. It's very sad because he doesn't even, you can tell he does. It's not about sexuality. It's not no, about it's, that it's about at friendship. all. It's literally about companionship and not being alone in this world. And I think that's why, above any other monster, Frankenstein is on another level because at the end of the day, he's looking for a friend. He's yeah. just looking for someone to go through this life with. Yeah. And everybody else is like out for their own personal gains. And he just wants to be able to be like happy and survive. He
0: does. And it's exemplified by the fact that she, the way she reacts with a loud Elsa Lanchester scream. And he even tries again to reach out to her by, by touching her hand, sitting next to her first. Consent. Yes, he consent. did not ask for consent. He did not.
2: I want him to make a note on her makeup in this moment. Okay. Because I didn't realize till I watched that she's a live documentary why the makeup was so minimalistic. Mm-hmm. And it's to exemplify the fact that pretty people have dark thoughts. And I think that's such a yeah. wonderful thing. That is such a crazy subtext and it brings a whole nother level to her performance.
0: Yeah, and it and it's and and add to that the duality of her playing Mary Shelley who yeah. I know we were making fun of the line that Lord Byron gives, but can you believe that this bland and lovely brow conceived of Frankenstein? And the this sweet this, pretty
2: yeah. flower petal created something so gnarly oh my gosh exactly and it's more than i always took the line more than just that it's this woman yeah this woman created something bigger than herself yeah and not i always took it a little bit more like oh wow we're just surprised that she was able to do that (laughs)
0: yeah well and at the time that would have been seen as novelty now we uh, at least if you're if if you're a a, a a smart intelligent forward-thinking person which some of them don't exist right now unfortunately uh you you now see this as like well sure why not it's not inconceivable to us now but at the time it was
2: and especially with her husband being percy shelley such a noted like <laughs> author himself noted he, noted poet and asshole yeah yeah <laughs> But I mean, she had big shoes to fill. She had a name to carve a name for herself like that was a very big deal.
0: And what's funny is, is that in the attempt to uh, compete or at least keep up with her husband, she ends up exceeding her husband. Yeah. The only person really in that room that is a failure by modern standards is Percy Shelley, unless you're a literary fan, because (laughs) Lord Byron does have horror history because he helps originate the story that then becomes Bram Stoker's Dracula. He is origin. He is an originator of the vampire story. So you have, I think, with I think with Mary Shelley in particular, and especially Elsa Lanchester playing it, you do get this wonderful
1: uh,
0: double down on the statement that was said from this from David J. Skull's book about we're going to pre- present you a theme here about men trying to. You know, eliminate the need for women in creation, and we're going to double down with the idea of like all of this comes from an anxiety that a woman that a woman is feeling towards an aggression from a male standpoint, and it's exemplified by like the whole consent thing with the bride and whatnot. But there is it's something it's weird. You do read that from a modern context. It is like
2: she says no, and he shuts
0: it down. Yeah, literally. Exactly. And then he tries to be kind in a different way with the sitting down and touching her hand, but she rejects it again too. And that's when we get the line of him saying, she hates me like others. And that's when I thought from a modern context, like, Oh fuck incels. Shit.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like that, that to me was just like, ah, dang that this movie is eternal. And I'm, and I'm just sad for the rest of the world right now. And, but this, but really, in all honesty, when he says she hates me like all like others, from a overall context and whatnot, this is the culmination of the monster feeling absolutely alone. Yeah, and.
2: This is his bottom of the barrel, so to speak. This he, is his realization that there is never going to be a happy ending for him.
0: Which makes the ending of the film one of my favorite endings in horror history. Yeah, it's
2: very, very track- yeah, tragic. Yeah, th-
0: the movie is not my favorite horror movie of all time, but this is one of my favorite endings and one of my favorite final lines of dialogue in a movie. Yeah, for sure. um, but it starts with he- uh, Elizabeth esca- has escaped and she catches up to the castle. Shit's going down the monster's not happy with everything going on and he's about ready to just kill everybody. But he has this, he has a reflexive moment because Elizabeth comes in trying to, uh, save Henry and Henry goes, get big, get big
1: I'm
0: with that. One thing I got to bring up. I know he's supposed to be British, but at, at that point I'm just like, are you German? Question I mark. I always thought his <laughs>
2: get thick line was so funny. Get, get back. <laughs>
0: put the candle, Bick. Yeah,
2: but that's where Gene Wilder got that.
0: (laughs) Yep. And, and, and also Terry Gar because you have her doing that. (laughs) Would you like to have a role in that? I love Terry Garr in that movie. Um, But she comes in and he, she goes, I won't leave you. And he's like, but I can't leave them. And that's when the monster goes, yes, you go, you live. Turns to Doc P. And his
2: face, there's more. I was just when I rewatched it today. Yeah, I s- saw expressions in his face I've never really like absorbed before. He gets more light in his eyes. There's more expression in his just his eyes and forehead than he has in. Any of the other scenes in this movie or the meme before. It is a true, like an illuminating moment. He's not only gonna shut this whole whole operation down, but I feel like it's almost like a sacrificial moment a little bit. He's sacrificing himself to finally end this. And he, I always almost get a feeling of like
0: proud. He's happy with
2: this decision. I,
0: I was gonna say, I wanna add on to that because you talked about the light that comes into him. Yeah. The so uh, for for purposes of context, the the makeup is green and blue hue, mm-hmm. and James Mescal, the DP, would flash in a blue gel, gel light, light yeah. in order to make it more white and pale, pale and like and just devoid of life. All the other actors are lit with a red filter and whatnot. I feel like it's like it's, it's as if though he's pushing more of that element onto that moment because he has this. W- bright streak on the side of his face it's like it's a slight slash you won't notice it right away but there's like there's this is slash where he's got a bit of the gray but he's got a lot of the white here yeah and you add to that when he's like he's longing he's like or yeah. he's like he th- there's like regret i don't know if that's the correct emotion that i get out of it but it's, it's he's learned something i it's, it's i'm trying to figure out the facial expression the best way to describe that facial expression but it's just like I know what I have to do. You've got to leave me. it's a a knowing.
2: It's a realization of knowing. Yeah, it's the extroverted- He understands his purpose.
0: Yes. It's like the extroverted version of Obi-Wan Kenobi looking at Mark Hamill and then putting up the lightsaber before Darth Vader. Yes,
2: absolutely.
0: Yeah, and that's when he turns to Doc P and Elsa Lanchester and says my favorite line, you stay, we belong dead. We belong dead. And that's (laughs) what- The one thing that the editing has not... and a tear.
2: He does that like one tear down the side of his face.
0: And that's when we also get the hiss of the bride, which uh, Elsa Lanchester got that hiss from... Her experience of witnessing the way swans uh, reacted around the park when she and Charles Lawton would go to feed them at Regent Park. So that's a swan hiss that she's doing for that, like which is fascinating me because when I
2: was a kid, I always thought it was like a cat hiss. Yeah, I always got like a cat hiss out of it. But knowing that, I mean, knowing being English aristocracy, is <laughs> feeding the ducks and the swans on the weekend, yeah, which makes a little bit more Charles sense. Lawton going,
0: Elsa, darling. <laughs> You 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 fed that you fed that swan way too much. It's too fat now.
2: <laughs> I wonder how many times she got too close to a swan and then it chased after her hissing, and that's why she knows that sound.
0: Oh my god. And then that's when Just
2: like picture Charles Lawton and <laughs> Elsa Lanchester <laughs> Lann- just like <laughs> screaming, running through the park being chased by a gaggle of God damn swan. it, Elsa, this
0: is the fifteenth time <laughs> <laughs> this week that you've pissed <laughs> off the swans. <laughs>
2: but that hiss is so iconic too and it's literally her last moment in the film.
0: Yep, and that's when we also get the tears as you said. And we but it's like her she only has that 5 minutes that you talked about, but she's so indelible an in image and she represents so much for him. Yeah. Which you could read that as, you know, disingenuous. I, I look at it as like it's this ultimate companion to the overall theme of this film of loneliness and realizing that this guy cannot find any companionship in any, no matter how hard he tries because of the way the machinations of a shitty man have made him, you know? And the one edit that I don't love in this movie, it's only because I just always notice it is the slow descent of his hand on the lever. It it, it runs a little too long. I don't care about it either way. It's, Without it, I don't feel like I've witnessed Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. It's like one of those imperfections where I'm like, if I don't have this shot, I don't have the movie. Because it's so burned in my head, that image. And the monster just says like, fuck it, ladies and gentlemen, blow up this castle. Yeah. And the final shot is Elizabeth and Henry have escaped uh, to conceivably live a happily ever after. The end, we get uh, a good It's really
2: abrupt. It's basically blow shit up and then credits. Yeah.
0: It, he, James Wales just like look I want to go home yeah <laughs> yeah we don't this is a good enough ending I want to make showboat next if you don't mind something different and we get a good cast is worth repeating uh, which is a thing I that, love that I love it too I wish more directors would use it but I I've heard some people say that like that that's disingenuous or that's egotistical you should never do that i'm like no it's fucking fun what are you talking yeah. about like be proud of your cast number one number two using that phrase is super fun it's super cool you're honoring the talent exactly and it, it feels like a theater it feels like theater yes. I, I love the idea of incorporating theater into film at times because it's just like the two are married in certain ways they
2: really are and i think that's uh a- tangential but i feel like that's what makes me more of a valuable actor is because i have a background in theater when you have a background in theater you just understand the aspects of production production yeah exactly the the scene painting the costumes the makeup the hair drilling in your set like it's 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 a whole experience that i feel that sometimes gets come Departmentalized a little bit more heavily in film, and these old classic movies really still because film hasn't been around that long. They're still very much married. Yeah, the sets on this movie very much feel like theater sets. They're painted backdrops. These are handmade trees. They're detailed. They're detailed too,
0: and they're detailed in a intimate and broad sense. They they function as both because you can zoom in on a detail on it, and it works. If you look in the back, it's like a full Impressionist painting or a wonderful map painting, whether that's by Albert Whitlock or Ellen Shaw or any of the great masters of this work. And the th- I think some of the best elements that still hold up in film today are when you get theatrical. Absolutely, I think that it's hard to recognize it beyond just musicals at times, but there are small, there are small touches of what the bigger, broader scope can do. I think actually Quentin Tarantino's really good at this with his wider shots because he does incorporate an element of broad performance and staging it like a play. And he's talked about like how he's, Hateful Eight is, was supposed to be a play initially. There are moments in that film that feel like that and the background feels as detailed as a stage set. And He writes dialogue
2: like he was writing for a play. Yeah. Because in plays you don't get the visual as close you don't get to zoom in and place so you have to tell everything you have to say it all and he is very known for his long-winded expositions (laughs) which is way more akin to a play than it ever would be in a film
0: exactly and also you brought up kevin smith he's always seen this as a detriment because he always says like i don't really have a style as a director and i'm like no you you're theatrical yeah you're very theatrical he made the version of Clerks Three that he was gonna do before he's doing this current one now that is shooting in New Jersey, he did it. He wanted to do it. He did it as a stage play for one night only at the Red Bank Theater. It makes perfect sense. I would love to go watch Kevin Smith Theater. That'd be fucking badass.
2: Well, how many plays do you see get turned into movies? A lot, my friend. A lot of them. It's already done for you. All the hard work is done. It
0: is. And in fact, actually, have you ever seen the Petrified Forest from nineteen thirty six? Yeah. No. Watch it. It's a uh, Bogart's um uh, you'll have fun with it. It's Bogart's big break in Hollywood. But this is because he got this from playing uh Duke Mantee, the world-famous killer in this story about a standoff at a last chance gas station in the middle of and New- in the middle of um Arizona. And the the Petrified Forest to me is a good example of how theater is well translated into film because it allows for the wide and the in the broad, but when you have to get intimate, it chooses to be intimate. Uh, Archie Mayo is really good at selecting his shots accordingly. I don't think it gets the proper recognition, just like in the same way that in the same way that other theatrical productions like this, but this has theater all over it, Bright of Frankenstein, 100%. and it gets that recognition that something like Petrified Forest won't. I think it's because. There are so many other cinematic tricks going on in a in a horror movie like a Universal monster movie that the theatricality is kind of blended into the mix, so it's not as noticeable right away until you stop to really look at everything. Dracula is the most on its nose a stage play adaptation, yeah, um, and I think others have seen it as a detriment. I like it because it is a representation of this is what the Hamilton Dean play looks like for people watching it in London or in New York. I want to see that. I also don't care because Todd Browning's learning the sound (laughs) technique. He's been working in silence for so long. He has to learn a new trick. He perfects it in the Devil Doll, guys. And I think that we we've we've talked about the Bride of Frankenstein for a good chunk of time for people to understand the brilliance of this film. Now the question is, how was this received at its time? Well, first of all, remember when we talked about the code? Yeah. The production code. Um the film was challenged in several state censorships, not the least of which was the state of Ohio. Um and the the code seal of approval came before those objections by the Ohio censors. Censors in England and China objected to the scene in which the monster gazes longingly upon the unanimated body of the bride, citing concerns that it looked like necrophilia. I mean, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but who but cares? he's
2: Dead. Yeah, he's dead. He's a reanimated corpse. Why does it matter?
0: <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs>
2: it's, it's it's people censorship is bullshit. It is.
0: Down with censorship! By the way, everybody out there, watch the movie Censor. Uh, that came out not too long ago. Very, very good, efficient movie about the dangers of censorship and who the real monsters are. Um, And the Universal Pictures voluntarily withdrew this film from Sweden because of extensive cuts demanded. And this film was rejected by Trinidad, Palestine, and Hungary. So they didn't even get this film for years. Um, And Japanese censors objected to the scene where Pretorius chases his miniature Henry VIII with tweezers, asserting that it constituted making a fool out of a king. At the time, Japan was under the Emperor Hirohito, so they were touchy about that stuff. Um, This is also prior to, obviously, World War II kicking off anyway, so Japan's in a different state of mind attacking China. It comes with a lot of context in that that sense. But... This film was profitable for Universal. Um, a report from 1943 showed that the film had earned $2 million, which would be $29.9 million today's dollars, uh, for the studio at a profit of about $950,000. Now, it is a hit, but Universal receives this hit that's not enough for them. Be- oh,
2: hits are different. <laughs> yeah, oh, Yeah. <laughs> It's a little bit... When we think of a hit, we think of, like...
0: A billion dollars. Yeah,
2: earth-shattering numbers. This is a little...
0: Now, what would if, if I were to tell you that the reason that they didn't consider this a hit was because they were in bigger trouble, would you not be surprised?
2: No, because most... Until, like, the 60s and 70s, most movie studios were hanging on by a thread.
0: It was. Universal especially, because... At the same time that this was being uh, released, Universal was mounting its big production of Showboat, a sound remake of its prior success with Showboat, which would be directed by James Whale. This is a movie that I recommend people check out with the caveat that you see Irene done in full-on blackface that it is disturbing as shit. But you also get Paul Robeson singing, singing Old Man River which is his signature song, and Paul Robeson has a great deal it's of history. It's the only
2: song anyone knows from that musical. Let's just be honest. Right? Yeah, it
0: is, because Paul Robeson's a fucking yeah. badass. Um, and But this production was so expensive and recalled all the resources of Universal that Universal had to go to a private set of investors that basically put the caveat that like if you don't make this money, this movie with the money that we're giving you on time... On time is the key. We reserve the right to buy the studio from you without objection. They did not get the movie finished in time of the deadline, so the Lemleys had to sell their studio for a paltry $5.5 million as a result of Showboat. If Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein had been a bigger success along with every other film coming out of their coffer, they would have had better means to fund Showboat and not rely on the outside buyers that would eventually purchase the studio from the Lemleys who started the studio. And we're building that legacy off of what would become Universal City for all of us. And I think that it's still a testament to the fact that this movie is a hit, that people responded to it audience-wise en masse. The critics' films... um I I find them to be a little bit interesting because I don't think they're all latching onto it, but the film was praised. People did latch on to the popularity of this film and the the brilliance of this film in certain respects. The New York World-Telegram called it good entertainment of its kind. The New York Post described it as a grotesque, gruesome tale which, of its kind, is swell. The Hollywood Reporter... (laughs) called it a joy for those who can appreciate it. All these reviews point to the fact that they are aware of what audience is going to enjoy this film. They're already putting a niche on what horror is. Horror films, as, they, as they've extended for the most part of their longevity on this earth, have always been understood, whether fortunately or unfortunately, to be for their audience. I think we're in an age now where uh, horror is much more universally accepted than it was back then. I would agree. And the constitution of it being art versus schlock or garbage or trash is... I think it still exists for some people, but primarily horror has been able to elevate into the proper stratosphere of elegance and excellence because as we learned over the last four years, and as we've learned even over the last 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, horror is the only genre that speaks to our fears directly from a societal context, from an intimate context, from a personal context. It is the only genre that is able to evoke the the deep stuff we don't want to confront. Um, And I do think that the brilliance of something like Brian and Frankenstein is that it sets a tone for discussing tough subjects as do the other horror films that come before it. Dracula brings to mind the initial context of that story being about (laughs) xenophobia. (laughs) Um, And Frankenstein starts off the allegory of man playing God and the, 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 the genuine fear someone can have over this, this disregard this towards this, the, the way life is created. And this ups the ante with the feminist allegory, and it addresses other elements that we've discussed through the subtext that nobody would have bothered to point out unless you had James Whale doing this.
2: You know, the that She's Alive documentary brought up something that I had never thought about before, but I think is like the best allegory for Bride of Frankenstein and that is, it's Faust.
0: It's a retelling yeah. of Faust. Faust comes up a lot here. Yeah. And, and and actually, and even like, I mean, Dr. Pretorius is pretty much a flamboyant Mephisto. Yeah. Which they describe in the doc and then and you'd have got Henry being Faust and I, I love how he plays with classical elements that go beyond just Mary Shelley. He's drawing from everything. He's drawing from everything to make his point. And, you know, when I brought up the fact that James Whale might not be intentionally injecting homo- homosexual subtext into the film, and it's more camp, as described, if you want to differentiate the two. Yeah. He's smart enough to understand how to make this interesting for him. And vicariously through him, genuine things he feels are injected, whether he realizes it or not. And a lot of the beauty of these horror films is there's a, there's a lot you can read into after the fact because the personality of the director or the writer like uh like Kurt Seydmak with the Wolfman he's drawing into Nazi allegory with um the Wolfman mm-hmm. and the fear of uh, the fear of the uh, the fear of the Nazi regime and the Wolfman and here Whale is touching into this this idea of Wu envy that extends into subtext of a homosexual nature and also the feminist nature that we discuss that i think i'm glad that it went under the radar for a lot of people so that the film could continue to grow and ex- and inspire
2: well i think that and i had a discussion with a fellow filmmaker recently audiences that are smarter yeah. They understand a lot more. I think it went under the radar for so long because people just didn't fucking get it. Yeah. They didn't understand. They had no context. Yeah. And we have over, well, at this point, over 100 years of cinema to use as context.
0: And we have the internet. And, and we, we have. have an-
2: yeah. And- we are a lot more attuned to. To these very subtle subtexts, yeah. that were not—they just did not understand at that time,
0: right? And I think that, like, it culminates in a lot of ways for very recent films of the of the last uh, of the last ten years, I'd say. Um, you know, Ari Aster has been very good with this with Midsummer and Hereditary.
2: That is a great Midsummer, yeah, is an incredible movie. It is
0: an incredible film that does a great job of layering in this. At it at its broadest sense, a breakup movie into this strange occult, <laughs> uh, occult situation in the middle of in the middle of the Netherlands like that. I think he plays with imagery the same way James Wales does in certain respects. He uses a lot of elegance to instill that fear. Um, and Jordan Peele, from an obvious point, has drawn into how to underlay themes. In the case of Get Out, it's microaggression and racism,
2: and. I'm very excited to go see Candyman. I already have a group of people I'm going with. Very, very, very excited to see a new, because I've seen the trailer. The trailer, this is going to be a new take on this story.
0: I have been avoiding a trailer since that first teaser because My my, my, uh, my friend told me that the new trailer shows a lot that, convinced him and i'm like that tells me i don't want to watch that trailer i want there to go there is and blink. a
2: lot they basically do Candyman's new backstory in the trailer oh shit okay. he has a completely new backstory that has nothing to do with the first oh movies. Okay. but it's way more i'm not going to spoil it for you it's a lot more topical to what we have i'm trying to phrase this so i don't spoil it it's <laughs> gonna be a lot more topical of what's going on in society today, okay. Than the movies in the eighties were. I the eighties gotcha. were very much like, here's a cool backstory that kind of sort of makes sense, but not really. Uh, let's get into the slasher movie.
0: Yeah, it's that the eighties and nineties. Like the one thing that the first Candyman does is draw into the, uh, into the sufferings of poverty in in these different ghetto areas,
2: and, and we're doubling down on that uh, on this one. Whoa. Because I it was gotcha. much more about the 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 backstory in the original movies. There's like the slave and falls in love with the master's daughter, blah blah blah. Yeah. That is not what's happening Ooh, in this movie. I got gotcha. Say yeah. no more, so, my friend. Yeah. No, it's gonna be good. Yeah. I'm very excited. But but yeah,
0: Jordan Peel. Yeah, Jordan Peel and then I would also I would also say that uh I would say that Lee Wannell tapped into it with his remake of The Invisible Man. Subtext uh a subtext of of the well, I mean I, I, to put it bluntly, the bullshit women go through being stalked by men or yeah. that 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 survivor mentality that survivor element um that I think he doubles into he I think Lee Wannell found a way with the invisible man in the same way that james found James Whale found out with the Frankenstein movies of how to tell a more unique story than what was on the initial page, and with the bride of Frankenstein, whale takes the elements of that portion of the novel and expands on him in his own way. Just as Lee Wannell takes the idea of an invisible man and the Griffin character brings it up to date, but also tells a story that's much more prevalent than a mad scientist wanting world domination, which is much more in keeping with when that first film was released, that was on people's minds. Now what's on people's minds is (laughs) the struggle that women go through as far as *Brighter Frankenstein is concerned, this is cemented as a horror classic for many people. At the time of its release, it was only nominated for one Academy Award for sound recording for Gilbert Curlin. Did not win. Um, but this film has never needed an Academy Award because it's a classic. It's a classic by all standards of horror fans and general cinema fans. Even non-horror fans love this movie. Um, as far as the fates of the rest of the actors and principals involved in this film. These can be discussed at a later time, but I think James Whale deserves the uh the ending to his story here, even though he will return many times on this show. James Whale's career after Bride of Frankenstein stems into the showboat disaster which means that when Universal gets new ownership he is not treated like the star director that he was at the studio at this time.
2: I mean, he had autonomy. He was ba- he had the sweetest gig in the world. He had no one to tell him what to do. Yep. He got all the money he essentially wanted. He got to make the films he wanted, and then the man came in. Yeah, the man came in
0: <laughs> and removed You you're not kidding because the Charles Rogers administration of universal went into sporadic mode and they didn't trust anything under the Lemley regime because whale is relegated to whatever assignments are being given to him. He grows disenchanted with it. He goes back to London to do stage plays. He had a partner at this time, David Lewis, who he was with until 1952 at around 1952. He returns to Los Angeles where he spends his remaining years um, crippled by strokes And a debilitating health overall, he was always pegged as the horror director that he wanted to avoid. He wanted to be a director of all kinds. That didn't happen for him. Um, On May 29th, 1957, a note was left at James Whale's house. To all I love, do not grieve for me. My nerves are all shot, and for the last year I have been in agony day and night except when I sleep with sleeping pills. And any peace I have by day is when I am drugged by pills. I have wonderful—I had a wonderful life, but it is over, and my nerves get worse, and I am afraid that they will take me away. So please forgive me, all those I love, and may God forgive me too. But I cannot bear the agony, and it is best for everyone this way. The future is just old age and illness and pain. Goodbye, and thank you for all your love. I must have peace, and this is the only way. Jimmy. James Whale was found in, the, in his swimming pool floating dead by suicide at, um, in a very tragic way for a director who had such life in him. That is exemplified by the movie we just talked about today, Frankenstein, Journey's End, Showboat, The Invisible Man, One More River. There is an exuberance about J- James Whale that I think is lost um, by the change of the administration at Universal, but also just the way he got relegated. And what's interesting is is that, in a lot of ways, the thing he wanted to avoid is the reason we love him for all the best reasons and not out of um, mockery or um, uh, disingenuous nature. We genuinely love what James did for it, and not just because it's a horror movie, but because it's a good movie. Whether that's Bride of Frankenstein, Invisible Man, or Frankenstein, or The Old Dark House. We love his movies because they are good movies. We don't peg him as a horror director. We peg him as a good director. At least that's how I've always seen him as.
2: I I would agree. And And I hope that if he was still alive today, he would see that most people don't just pigeonhole him as the horror director anymore. He is a great overall director.
0: Yeah, and he brought a lot of things to the forefront in his films that we use to this day. Innovation and special effects, regardless of our disdain for some CGI elements, bringing Black Velvet on his productions into the formation of the Invisible Man, that's a thats a template for a lot of people to get inspired and say, how can I do better? How can I up the ante on this? Whether it's with practical things in front of you or a computer. He is at the forefront of great makeup, who Jack Pierce is the inspiration for Bud Westmore who is the inspiration for Rick Baker who is the inspiration for any modern makeup artist working today. I wish we held
2: more classical directors in as high of esteem that we do with like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg because the people like James Whale yeah. and like those old long lost forgotten guys they are truly the reason why we get to enjoy the things we enjoy about movies today because they fell on their face. They made bad decisions. They made the hard choices. Yep. They came up with really creative, innovative ways to make these movies play.
0: Yep. And if they didn't do that, we would not be here. Hitchcock, Curtiz, yes. Houston, Wells, John Ford. Um, <laughs> you could tell this. this Willie Wilder, um, George Stevens, um, I've mentioned a lot of top tier ones, but also Robert Flory directed the first Marx Brothers movie, something that has definitely inspired comedy. Uh, and we we have uh, we have this. I think to, I mean Todd Browning. I think is still a very influential director because of aesthetic yeah. um, with his silent films. His, or his talking movies films.
2: have a very specific tone to them, and it's very. I think it's a little bit harder to achieve tone specifically in a black and white movie because you don't have color to play with
0: no but you have mood and you have expressionism at at your
2: at your feet and he has a very unique tone to his movies i
0: agree freaks and dracula run are actually a good double bill for that reason because the tone is very similar there's something unsettling in the air very on its nose but you can't always pinpoint it whether that's lugosi's charm or the code of the freaks itself like there's something amiss yeah and james wales has a tone of i think humanity in his films whether that's for the absolute bizarre like the old dark house or the compassion one can feel in the bride of frankenstein um and the thing that, that's wonderful about you saying that we don't recognize the directors of, of the past one not I will only push back in the sense that I think, thankfully, because these films have become a little bit more readily available, whether through streaming or Blu-ray, people are starting to take notice. I think it is sort of in our niche area so far, but I think there's—I'm optimistic that there's room for people younger than us to be enthralled by these directors the way some of our contemporaries were enthralled by Spielberg or Scorsese or Lucas. And that, that gives me hope. And the good news is that director Bill Condon, who I loved to death, made a movie that you alluded to not too long uh, not too long ago in the conversation, 1998's Gods and Monsters. Yeah. An Academy Award winning film with uh, Ian McKellen playing James Whale in a very compassionate portrayal um in a fictionalized story about the relationship and friendship he um uh, develops with his gardener, played by Brendan Fraser. Which, by the way, if you don't think Brendan, if you're wondering why Brendan Fraser is getting a resurgence right now, there's a couple reasons for it. But the one big one that I always take away from is he's always been fucking talented. He's an incredible.
2: This is movie is everything you love about Brendan Fraser and why I think. His his personal story is very tragic. Yeah. And he did not get the career that he deserved. He didn't. Like he's way more than George of the Jungle. (laughs) He's way more. He does an incredible performance in this movie, which I do. I want to say that I feel like this that I'm glad we brought this movie up again because and we were talking about James Wells, the end of his life. This particular movie wraps up in such a nice, pretty bow. And I wish that it didn't. Yeah. yeah. It is very fictional. There's really not much real life in this movie, but it's still a great movie, and to me, in canon. I wish they would have gone a little bit more true to life than the fictional sort of happy ending that we get to that movie.
0: Yeah. Gods and Monsters to me always feels like it's capturing the reality of the spirit of James yeah. Whale. For, it's an homage for sure. It's an homage. It does a lot of real things really good, especially the suicide scene which is you know it's I I don't find revelry in that scene yeah but I am there's a tragic feeling that that overwhelms me when I watch that scene because you are you're seeing Lynn Redgrave uh, freaking out poor Mr. Jimmy poor Mr. Jimmy and you have you have Clayton Boone the gardener really not sure how to process it but he is aware that like okay we've got a We've got to get we've got to get him into this position here. We can't have it look like you put him in there. You've got to look like you found him. Like it, it's again, it's not true to life. But it is like one of those things that's just like it's interesting to see how Bill Condon unfolds this story that's conceived by Christopher Brahm mm-hmm. of the idea of what happens to the father of Frankenstein. I I love love, love, love uh, the final moment of that movie where he's showing the movie to his kid. And he takes out the trash and he's he's come full circle into this sense of normalcy, but there's something that he felt a connection with and a kinship. And he himself, they make a lot of allusions to the monster and the creator in this. And I love the shot of Brendan Fraser in the rain doing the Frankenstein walk. Yeah. I think it's like it, the movie deals with tough issues and James Whale doesn't always come off as the greatest person from a modern context in that movie but there is something about the way Ian McKellen plays it that there is so much like sympathy for this man who is alone and he himself has become the monster that he himself created in a lot of respects, but there's also this element of him being the creator and trying to tussle with those two ideas in the air at once. Condon's a great filmmaker breaking Dawn aside <laughs> Uh I just, he needed money. That's fine. But I feel like everybody who did those movies needed money. David Slade needed money. Of course he did. (laughs) Everybody needed money. Um, And, but yeah, it's a movie that you could find pretty accessibly. And I think it's a good double feature with Bride of Frankenstein.
2: It is currently on a number of streaming sites. We just watched it on HBO Plus the other night.
0: That's good. Yeah. Um, I actually, I splurged and got, I have the DVD copy, but I found out they put it on Blu-ray finally. And I splurged. Needlessly to Lionsgate, I got a Blu-ray copy of that movie without special features, sadly, because the DVD has wonderful special feature uh, of the making of the movie. Um, But yes, that I think the legacy ultimately that we could take away from this, Aaron, is I mean, as we begin this discussion of universal monsters, clearly this is more than just people in makeup walking around and scaring us.
2: Absolutely. I think
0: that there's lessons to still be learned from these movies. Brian Frankenstein, I think has the most on its nose lessons about the human condition um, and speaks to, as we already discussed, those feminist themes and allegories and also how one deals with camp humor and homosexual subtext contained within a a movie. This movie has the audacity to address religion. It does a lot in the span of 75 minutes. A lot is said.
2: An incredible amount is accomplished in a very short time frame. Yeah. It's a good
0: study on how
2: you don't need a three-hour movie (laughs) to get a a very effective story told. I have been teaching a summer camp for kids this year, and they did a short movie. And everyone wants to have their big three, four-hour Zack Snyder epics, and you don't need
0: it. Nope, you don't. You
2: don't need it.
0: I love The Irishman, but you don't need three and a half hours. What did, what
2: did you get at the end of that three and a half hours? Could a huge chunk of that been cut out, condensed, and the information still been the same? Absolutely. I watched that movie. I agree. That movie was too
0: long. I agree. Objectively, yes. Now that being said, since I am a Scorsese fan, I do just like sitting in three and a half hours of him just going like, "Yeah, Netflix gave me all this money, so I'm just going to do this." But like, but that's a separate part of my brain from like the, from the overall context of what you're talking about. Yes, you you can get so much done in so little time. Like that's why I like Godzilla versus Kong. An hour and 45 minutes, it gets right to the point. There's one bad subplot in that movie, and that's it. (laughs) Um, And unfortunately, it's Billy Bobby Brown's (laughs) storyline. I don't like that storyline in the movie. But uh, I think that's all to say that as we continue talking about these monster movies, we're going to find that there's so much more than what seems on the surface for people. And also to realize for a younger audience listening to this or watching these movies for the first time, these movies are still terrifying. Because we just talked about a a couple of terrifying things that occur in this movie that, if you are emotionally in tuned with it, can still send a chill down your spine. But not for the reasons that you normally get scared by a horror movie. I think today they have become a bit more of an intellectual uh, scare, which is good. I would agree, yeah. Because I think it's a good teaching tool. I think it's a good teaching tool for anybody to look past the age and recognize the beauty in that respect, in that regard. And on that note, Aaron, thank you for sitting down with me to talk about the bride of Frankenstein. Thank you. We will definitely want you back at some point. And I think that we've got to keep you around for more of these universal monster movies, because you did bring up the fact that this is a primarily a female driven monster movie where there's a dearth of them, uh, out there with the universal monsters, but there is the invisible woman, which has way more subtext than you'd think it does being that one note. (laughs) I love that movie. It's, uh, It's a Barrymore at the end of his rope in that movie, Uh, but it's a very good one. I want people to know, Aaron. where can they find more of your work? Where can they find you?
2: Well, like you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, we did a project recently. And as soon as that comes out, I know that you and I will both post that on our socials. Yeah. I am currently... Um, in the works of getting a project up off the ground called Creative Consultants where creative people or non-creative people can come to myself and my partner and we can help them in any sort of uh, aspects that they need help with in their creative process. Do you need help running lines? Do you need interview prep? Do you need help going over a scene breakdown? Uh, My partner is a award-winning filmmaker, Kat Watson, um, and the two of us are going to hopefully have this Uh, up off the ground in the next couple of weeks i'm at aaron Mullane official on instagram or you can also find my aaron Mullane facebook page and you can follow me on there any new updates that i do i will be posting on there
0: wonderful and and uh and i i want to say that it was it was wonderful to kick off the discussion of universal monsters with not, not just you as an actor speaking to actor process and the smaller details, but talking a little bit of makeup, which is a big part of the... Uh, the legacy of Universal Monsters. So I think you are an absolute wonderful entry point for this subject matter. So thank you very much for bringing the bride. Yeah, thanks Uh,
2: for having me. And I look forward to coming back and talking about more monster movies.
0: Don't worry. We will definitely, we'll make that probably happen sooner rather than later. Um, But that is going to be it for this episode of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us in the back end on our our show tags. Uh, But until next time, folks, good night. And remember... If you wonder if something is amiss in the distance, in the dark, and all of the talk that we've had about monsters and ghouls has got you down, just slowly sink back into your bed and remember, there are such things. Good night. I can't leave them, I can't! Yes,
1: go! You live! Go! You stay! stay! We belong dead.
0: This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification.